Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What's up, party people, and welcome to Countdown to Classic. This is a podcast that educates, informs, and gossips about World of Warcraft Classic. Each week, we discuss the news, hot-button issues, and content of the highly anticipated Classic servers. I'm your host, Josh Corbett, and this is a show where it's not my opinion on World of Warcraft that counts, but yours. If you're new to the show, Countdown to Classic goes through your expert input on everything relating to the upcoming release of World of Warcraft Classic. This week, we'll go through yet another extensive featured call all about a beloved raid in vanilla World of Warcraft being Molten Core. We'll hear from three elite WoW raiders in Ale, North, and AK, who came together for an amazing chat, blending their experiences tearing up Ragnaros from back in the day, as well as from private servers. And after that, we'll hear from another listener on a shorter call all about mounts in the game. Now, you all know the drill by now. This is a community-based podcast, so if you like what you're hearing, join the Discord and keep the conversations going with us all over there. Follow the show on social media, and also email me at feedback at countdowntoclassic.com if you'd like to call into the show, make a suggestion, or just say hi. Everything you'll need is in the show notes for each episode. If you're a huge fan of the show and you'd like to pick up some Countdown to Classic merch, including t-shirts, coffee mugs, hoodies, phone cases, clocks, etc., etc., then I've just launched the Countdown to Classic store on Redbubble this week. So please check the link in the show notes for the place to go for all of that great stuff. But for now, let's start the show with Calling Countdown. Okay, it's time for another Countdown to Classic call, and we have three uh, very learned raiders in this call, and I'm so happy for all of you to be here. Putting this all together was was uh, a, a bit of a last-second um, 
sort of mayhem as we tried to fill a spot. Uh, Dereal Marky Mark was going to be here with us. Unfortunately, he had some real-life stuff come up at the last second, had to drop out. Luckily, we've got a last-minute replacement. And I'll just start with uh, that last-minute replacement, actually. Ale, thanks so much for uh, jumping in uh, when I sort of put the bat signal up. Hey, no worries. I was actually just watching the uh, Lego movie, so... <laughs> the Batman's the common theme. Very good. Yeah, and, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I welcome back two more people, and I'll start with someone who I haven't spoken to for quite a while. He was excellent on his last call. Well, both of them were excellent on their last calls. AK, thanks so much for coming back, mate. I've, I've been really keen to speak with you again. I'm so glad you're here again now. Yeah, happy to be here, man. Uh, yeah, it was a pleasure last time. Looking forward to tonight. Excellent. And finally, North, my boy. Mate, I still look back so fondly. And, and I say this to people to this day. People say, oh, Josh, what are some of your favorite personal episodes? And I will always generally say our chat about majors is up there, um, right in my top five, because I had a blast talking with you. And you've been a busy boy lately. But look, mate, it's, it's so great to have you back on the show. It's fantastic to be here. I, I, I really, I, I still tell people a lot about the time when I was half manic in Netherguard Keep, like spouting off about maids for like two and a half hours with you as I, you know, <laughs> just kept grinding with uh, one of my guildies. So yeah, it's great to be back. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. Now, what we're going to do very briefly, guys, is as I said, we're, we're chatting everything and anything molten core over about the next hour and a half or so. Um, this is not so much a guide if people want a guide to how to get through molten core if you want your best strategies and all of that jazz on all the encounters there are plenty of places on youtube to go and do that this is a chat between three veterans who have done the uh, the raid a million times just about their favorite memories if they've got a funny story or two about some of the encounters some weird interesting things they notice some different ways to take down the encounters that might not be quote-unquote optimal, and and more importantly, a lot of commentary on some of the interesting loot that we'll pick up through Molten Core and reasons to be there. You know, it's obviously an incredibly beloved raid. It's the first, if you don't count a Nixie, it's the first big raid that we go through. And um, these guys have a boatload of experience. So what I'll do very, very briefly is just get each and every one of you to talk a little bit about your raiding experience and your raiding experience in Molten Core. So, Ayo, let's start with you. People will remember you from our episode about Nax Ramus, in which you were excellent. It was pretty damn obvious that you know your stuff about that instance. And so one could then surmise that you probably know a thing or two about Molten Core as well. Just tell people about your raiding experience and also maybe how many times you've run through Molten Core. Yeah, so uh, during Classic, I had multiple Exalted characters. Uh, I've basically been through every iteration of Molten Core, uh, starting right from the beginning, uh, when we went in with a pug. Um, and, um, you know, first kills and everything. Uh, been through, like, the uh, pre-nerf versions, as well as the, all sorts of crazy stuff that used to exist, like, you know, Tier 2 dropping in Molten Core and things like that. And uh, as well... Um, Recently on private servers, it got another character exalted. So I've I've been in there a lot. Very good, very good. All right, uh, AK, let's move on to you, mate. Very briefly, tell us about your background and why people should believe. And as we said, we've we talked rating before on the show. You were excellent to sort of in a, a blanket call about rating. We touched on a little bit of everything. I didn't pin you down to one particular raid. Now we're pinning you down to one. But just remind people, why are you the, a, a great person to be on, in on this call? How many freaking times have you been through Molten Core? <laughs> more times than we can count i think uh yeah so i in retail i did molten core you know 
a bunch of times. Um, cleared Blackwing Lair up to Twin Imps in AQ and then like three or four, four bosses in, in Nax. Uh, and then as far as private servers are concerned, I've probably cleared Molten Core on, <laughs> I don't know how many different private servers, maybe close to like double digits. Um, and all different difficulties, pre-nerf, nerfed, like buffed HP, buffed damage, nerfed HP, nerfed damage, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, I know the ins and outs pretty, pretty well. All right. Now, please, all of you, someone remind me later on to touch on that sort of, as AK just mentioned, pre-nerf, post-nerf, and, and we'll go down that avenue as well. Now, finally, North. Again, you talk to us all about mages. You know that class inside and out. Tell us why you know Molten Core inside and out. Well, actually, it's probably the thing that I've done the most, actually having rolled with Grizzly, um, like, uh, you know, being the meme fucking only MC guild, uh, famous on Nost for getting MC first and then quitting the server, um, and then rolling on Elysium and quitting for a little bit before coming back and going. But, um, yeah, actually, I wasn't too great at MC, actually, prior to probably my most recent um, server on Northdale because I hadn't, on Mage at least, but since then, right, I, I've been on three private servers. I'm a lot newer than AK and Ale in that regard. I cleared it twice in retail when I was nine years old, post-nerf, um, you know, when uh, my guild at the time told me that I uh, had to look in the, you know, the the, the compartment behind Golemag to, to see Ragnaros for the first time, and I died. So I'm not, you know, I, I don't have that same level of retail experience, but I know my ins and outs of Molten Core as a mage. Um, and just more generally, I've done it, you know, dozens and dozens of times, maybe not, you know, the several hundred thousand times that AK has done it, but uh, enough to know and enough to be good. So, All right. Excellent. Well, look, let's get into it, guys. And as we say, it's now pretty obvious to me if it wasn't before, and it should be to everyone listening here, that you guys will be the right people to talk to. And I'm sure as we go through every answer, it will become more and more apparent. Now, Ale, I'll start with you. And, and guys, as I say on all of these calls, please feel free to jump in at any point. I'll kind of direct traffic a little bit. I'll call to certain people and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? If you've got a pertinent point, just shout me down and say, Josh, I've got something to add. So that's all good. But it, this is generally going to be maybe a bit more of a chat between you guys at certain points, because as you guys know, as the listeners know, I wasn't a raider. Here's the, the weird thing about this call. One person on this call, being me, has never fucking stepped foot in Molten Core. I've only seen this place on video. So I'm still sort of sitting here with those stars in my eyes going, wow, you guys have been there. You've done it, man. Whereas I've just read about it in books and seen the videos. So I can't wait to get to uh, Molten Core when Classic comes out. But let's start just quite generally, and then we'll get much more specific as we go along. Tell me if... You love this instance, and why? Ale, let's start with you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, for me, it's my first ever, you know, rating experience, and, you know, you always remember the first time, right? <laughs> absolutely. So, like, this was, this was my wait, introduction. Wait, wait. We're talking about raids. Oh, yeah, no, I wouldn't know, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. I mean, that's just general life, you know. <laughs> so, for me... It, it was my first raiding experience ever. Uh, I'd never played MMO before, well, so being able to step into uh, you know an instance with forty other people like this and you know take on really challenging fights, like at least at that time, was you know something that was so different and new. It was awesome. Okay, and AK, let me ask you: Do you? I mean, 
this is going back in the memory banks and and any of you might be able to to get to this question after AK. Do you happen to remember your first time in Molten Call? Yeah, I was a I was an undead male undead warrior, uh MS warrior. And <laughs> no idea what I was doing, but yeah, I I certainly remember um the first time I was an MC. It was uh, it was an interesting time. There's just like so much that has evolved since then, so much that the meta has changed so much and you know back then you know, every fight was minutes and now they're all seconds. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's certainly changed. If you could go back and tap yourself on the shoulder and say one thing to a much younger version of yourself in Molten Core, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> I don't know if I can say, yeah, World <laughs> Buffs, but to, to touch on that a little bit, yeah, World Buffs weren't really a big thing and for most guilds until Nax, but... Mm. Oh man, just to like slap myself in the face and tell myself how to talent and and gear correctly uh <laughs> would be something i would do because mm. if if i was if i was doing you know the sort of damage that i can do now back then i would be as i would be known as a god mm. <laughs> just kind of based on that like just how much of noobs we are like specifically talking about my first time uh it was a pickup group that we went in there with and our tank was a paladin and of course couldn't hold aggro. And we had no idea really what we were doing. It took us two hours to clear to Lucifron. And then we wiped on Lucifron probably a dozen times. Everybody was broken and then we quit. So that was that was Not my first right. experience. <laughs> and we loved Not it. Not bad. Well that's <laughs> the important thing that you added at the end, Dale. Like as you say, you still freaking loved it. We we couldn't wait to get back in there because like this really presented a huge challenge. And I think in the early days, at least it started to bring people together in guilds because going in there with like a disorganized group like that, you just didn't have the level of coordination and leadership really needed to do anything, right? And people didn't know what they're doing. Like I remember you know, having a pally tank and our raid leader said, okay, when the ads spawn, you need to blizzard them, right? And so all the mages would blizzard and it's just, you know, think about it now, it just seems like, oh, that's so dumb. Like, I guess you hit both targets or multiple targets, but, you know, you need to focus those down. But really you had no idea, you know, nobody had any idea. North, if I can get to you and just say, interestingly, as a mage, what comes to mind or what feelings does it evoke when I say molten core? A lot of pre-casting, um, but actually AOE probably, um, more so than a lot of other instances, which a lot of people don't expect, and, and really I didn't expect until a couple of people sort of, you know, led me in, you know, with a cane to the idea that almost, I think it's half of the bosses in Molten Core, you're AOEing as mages, like half of the boss encounters and a ton of the trash, which makes it actually one of the more interesting raids for mage, like in terms of rotation, people are obsessed with this meme where mage is, oh, it's only Frostbolt when it's Frost, it's only Fireball when it's Fire, you know, you throw in the Scorch maybe, but um, Molten Core actually, you know, the very first raid flies in the face of that when you have these, while they're not too complicated, somewhat complicated AOE rotations where you have to, you know, pre-cast Flame Strikes into Palm Flame Strikes, you know, be sappering, oil immolation, you know, running in, um, depending on what trinkets you have, using even like Ramstein's Lightning Bolts and stuff on these AOE boss fights. That are, you know, among, what is it, Lucifron, Gehennis, Sulfuron, Gars, Ads, um, Domo, if you guys have enough gear. So it, it is, it's it's a fair number of the actual bosses. So Golem, probably AOE. 
Golmag if you want to pad meters, but actually in terms of <laughs> it, contributing the things. I actually did that all the time in Grizzly. I would I would dot up the uh, when I was a warlock, I would dot up the the yeah, um, you do. Yeah, yeah, when I was Nightfall nightfall. spec, I just throw the corruptions on. But it was actually was probably good for my single target DPS though. But as mage, like running in and trying to cone them is, you know, other than right before the boss is about to die, probably not. Yeah, there's definitely a huge, uh, a huge ceiling for mages in Molten Core. um, Going with what you said, with optimal AOE rotations and uh, like different cooldowns and all sorts of stuff and men in management especially as it's this long and it's like a simple it's a simple raid such that you really can like as a warrior or a rogue maybe a rogue but like as a warrior for instance this is the analogy that i always give people a warrior can never really have a perfect raid right there's too much there's too much you know variability there's too much okay you actually do have to respond to enough things mage is static enough and honestly right. simple enough in a raid, in raid environment that you could have a perfect raid in Molten Core, it's possible, and it actually involves a lot of moving parts, which I find very fun, you know, being at the front of the pack, making sure that, you know, you're throwing the dense dynamite in between the global as you run up to the mobs, that your frostbolt is faster to it, um, and, and all these very simple things, because the, the encounters are actually simple enough that you can focus on doing the absolute most damage that you can. So um, that is really what, and it's a little long-winded, but that, that's what MC comes to mind. It's, it's one of my favorite instances for that reason. Fair enough, fair enough. Now, you mentioned, obviously, Grizzly, and this is a, a guild that we've talked about on the show before, um, mostly with AK. So, AK, I'll just quickly throw it back to you. Now, talk to us just very briefly again about Grizzly and your experiences in there, perhaps, with Grizzly. And I'm presuming that, w- would you have been raid leading through Molten Core? Uh, yeah, so I joined the guild Grizzly back in 2014. Long story short, pretty quickly, I became an officer, um, took more responsibility, and then um, about like two years later, I ended up uh, just taking over the guild and being the GM and keeping all the guys who were in the guild pretty much uh, around. And yeah, so I've I've led my guild through MC, I guess only really through Elysium. I mean, before that, I, I did uh, MC with Grizzly on uh, Emerald Dream. Uh, and, uh, what was the other? Nostarius, how could I forget? Mm. And then when I took over, I led them through, uh, Elysium, but we haven't, we haven't done any other vanilla servers, um, that I've personally led with that guild. Um, fair enough. Just in relation to leading a raid, what finer points would you have to say about perhaps people are wondering who haven't led a raid before, but might be interested in doing it in classic? leading through the Molten Core, what are some things they should maybe look out for? You always got to be thinking one step ahead. And also, with 39 other people on your raid, you're bound to have a lot of people that aren't really like focusing or thinking straight. So you really have to do a lot of microwing and make sure people are doing their jobs, specifically to Molten Core. I guess, you know, some things come to mind, like, you know, when you're skipping trash to, you know, have some good pet management, make sure you're always calling out your hunters, because I can't tell you how many times that we've had hunters, uh, I'm sure North can remember how many times hunters pulled uh, imps in the early MC days on, uh, it happened too many times, but there's just so many little things you have to look out for, and, you know, if you if you take good charge of that, then your guild will probably do well in Molten Core. Somehow I have worse memories of botanist ass pulling things in BWL for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean that happened and we had cadet pull imps like multiple times with his pet <laughs> in Moncor. So 
Is there any one encounter that still gives you nightmares as a raid leader in Molten Core? Oh, Gar, for sure. Why, why so? So, going back to Nostarius, right? When we did Gar, we had like nine. So, our, my previous GM in that guild was like obsessed with Warlocks. And we would have like nine Warlocks, eight or nine Warlocks. So, we could just banish all the ads and, you know, kill the boss. So, that worked for us the first couple times. And it felt like every week after that, the Starius devs like changed the fight and eventually they, they added this mechanic in. I think it was like, I think they, they didn't break through banish at first, but then apparently like after 50% Gar could instruct one of his ads to explode in like a 40 yard radius. So <laughs> it didn't do it at first, but then eventually like a couple weeks down the line, like the ads would just do it through Surprise, banish. We couldn't figure it out. Yeah, exactly. And it would wipe the raid and we'd be like, what is happening? Like we had to figure out like what was happening with Gar every single, every single week because things were changing. But going off of that, there's just so many things that can go wrong on Gar. If like you're doing a very risky strat where you're having like one tank tank all the ads and like if the tank dies, like it's pretty much over because all the ads like run around and <laughs> explode on everybody. There's just so many funny, I can just think of so many funny videos where. It involves Gar, and it definitely causes a lot of stress if you're doing a risky, uh, risky strat. I'm scarred from Gar for totally different reasons. Because originally, when there were target marker icons, you used to have to assist the main tank targeting each ad individually. And if you've done Gar, you know that the ads kind of like dance and crisscross in and out. And so, just getting the targeting set up on that would be like ten minutes of like frustration you know your stoner lock would like lose his target and then you're like okay who or you know these two guys are targeting the same guy like before like basic ui elements were even like implemented it was like a challenge and just you know organization Ail, i'll stick with you now we had the word trash come up a little bit uh, before and now i want to dive into that just briefly what memories do you have of the trash in Molten Core? And, and I'll tell you as someone who, again, has never set foot in the place, but I still hear all these people mention and, and you know, the, the Core Hounds, the Core Hounds, it's all about the Core Hounds. It's such a great design for that mob. I've always sort of given kudos for Blizzard for that particular um, creation of that um, model. But we talk about the Core Hounds and the Skinners wanting to be there for the Core Leather and things like that. But, I mean, maybe talk about... Yeah, talking about them and any of the other trash. What did you make? Was it difficult to trash in Molten Core? I think the big thing with trash in Molten Core is that there's just too much of it. And really that's led to, you know, modern day players finding the best possible way to skip as much trash as possible. Compared to the other instances, like you'll see, like they've really toned down how much actual trash there is. Originally, some of them, um, I think the um, the patrolling ads didn't always despawn they did add that add that eventually but um there there is some challenge some challenging ads i know early on man you don't have that gear to tanks the uh molten destroyers can sometimes just melt them um if you screw up a pole like and get double stomped you know that can be problematic you know core hounds can be as well potentially with the uh 50 i think it i can't remember if it's a curse or magic it's curse they also have a magic debuff, though. That's the thing. Like they have both. They have the. I believe they. Have the, it's a cast time debuff or something that's on magic. Yeah, yeah. it's the cast Inten, time debuff. It's the Inten spirit. Right. That's the curse. So you, you usually you're okay with As one, well but stuff. if you get two, it's that's when things start to get really hairy, especially early on. 
And also, there's this onus to kill them so quickly because of those debuffs, because if you kill them for a certain time, it's not even that they're hard necessarily, it's that like you do have this onus to, because of those debuffs, how annoying they are for, you know, to dispel or decurse 40 people in a raid. Exactly. Um, or how a stun for three seconds and 40 people can end up in terms of deaths or... Uh, and due to the way know, the it, patrols work, like, once you start to yeah. get multiple... And, you know, and for a lot of people, like, MC is their first raid or the first raid, so you'll have people, like, you know, accidentally pulling things, and, you know, it, it can lead to a little bit of chaos if you're not, you know, everybody totally organized. So I think I think the challenge more comes in, like, how much there is and, like, potentially pulls. Okay. Or tanks for getting to put on their fire resist. The uh, the molten packs are can be pretty crazy too. All right. Now I'll ask the group this, and anyone jump in. The core hound, and again, I can't get over the core hounds. But I mean, I'm sure the trash in general. I'm just looking at the core hounds loot table now. But this would apply to all the trash. Does any obviously there's a lot of epic drops from the trash. They've got some incredibly low drop percentage chances but does anyone have any fond memories or anything of epics dropping just for the from the trash and one of your first few times in there and going holy shit like look at that i think north and nail could probably appreciate this but uh i've, I've seen a tivo's drop from <laughs> trash mob in there uh, it's like probably the rarest drop in the game absolutely um, and then, those can only drop on like is it level 63 and above mobs yeah I, I think it is 63 and above that's pretty fucking nice. Yeah, now to get a fucking Tivo's and MC, that's that's pretty that's poetic. Yeah, it was on uh, Valkyrie WoW, I think <laughs> the Elysium before Elysium. Now, I've never Elysium. seen any good. I've I, I think Celeb on Northdale saw as their third lion of Lionhorn of Stormwind in the server saw a round, but that was that was it, which uh, <laughs> does not feel too good. Probably the biggest memory I have. I don't know if you were raiding with us when we were doing the Scarab Lord farm, but for those people that don't know, in the, the Scarab Lord chain, the AQ quest chain, you have to go into Molten Core and you have to... One, one of the mobs, one of the trash mobs in Molten Core will drop these goggles that you need for a quest. And it's a very, it was a very low percent chance on Lightbringer. And <laughs> we ended up clearing Molten Core. So reset was on Wednesday. We cleared Molten Core on Tuesday. It didn't drop. Cleared Molten Core on Wednesday on the reset. It didn't drop. And then we cleared all the trash again on Wednesday. It didn't drop. Clear all the trash on Thursday. It didn't drop. And then midway through clearing the trash on Friday it finally dropped but it's that that's probably like the worst uh, memory I have as far as trash in Molten Core. Well now that I know that you've lived through a, a T-Boost drop can you just sort of lightly explain to everyone the feeling within the group or the kind of chatter that went on when you saw T-Boost Blazing Longsword uh, pop up as a, uh, a role? Honestly, back then, I don't think we really appreciated it as much as we probably would now. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was kind of a surprise. And I think like someone like meme equipped it, like a mage or something, <laughs> just meme equipped it. It wasn't a big deal back then. But I think now, like with another, I don't know, five, it's almost six years of private server vanilla WoW experience, you appreciate that a lot more and see the value in it. It was a very low pop server too, so you couldn't like sell it for ten. G's to Chinese or something. So, mm. 
All right. Well, look, let's get into it, guys. Let's talk about some of these encounters. And what we're going to be doing is going through each and every one of these wonderful encounters, the bosses that we find in Molten Core, and discussing some of the loot that they drop, some favorites, some maybe some duds and things like that. And just, you know, talk talk about some fun stories or memories that you have from, you know, the times that you've taken them down. So we've talked about him already. Let's start with Lucifron. One of, I think, five bosses in Molten Core with this character model, which I don't know if you guys found that a bit boring that, you know, half the bosses were effectively the same thing. But talk to me, Ale, about your memories of Lucifron. Yeah, pretty much Trath was the original thoughts on it. We didn't really raid with uh, any sort of raid frames or anything. So the, 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 the taxing requirements on the decursors and the debuffing was just like, for, for the first time, too much for us to handle. Healers running out of mana and then everybody just dying to the, you know, the 2k, uh, explosion. So like, first time, like. Wait, do you explode if you run out of mana on that fight? No, it's, if you don't get debuffed or, uh, dispelled after, I think, eight seconds. Right. I, I, oh, 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 right, 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 right. But like, you know, we got our shit down now, so like, that doesn't happen, right? Like that's I, I rarely, I rarely remember the mechanics in in Molten Core half the time because you just you know you, you negate them with a consume, so you don't even think about. It. Right, so you've you, got the you resto pot so running fat. early on, so yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and so like early on in MC, that kind of people didn't really know how to raid or what to do during raiding as much. I think the general population. There were some guilds and stuff that came over from EverQuest who were who were good, kind of knew what to do at the start, but I think generally most people didn't. Right. A lot of uh, a lot of things changed throughout the early versions of the game too. Like, you know, the five second rule was was added properly, and cast time on heals were reduced, and just kind of like a lot of things like that were like the original the original ways through it that a lot of people remember. They were really tough, and it's just because it was so different at that time, right? And so now, like, um, you know, when I've done it recently, you know, you just you just burn the boss, right? Kick. Yeah, it's a twenty-second fight. <laughs> and you just you just cleave. You pull everything together, and you just AOE it all down, and just cleave. AK, you mentioned just then the length of the fight, and this is something that's been coming up on. I know the countdown to classic Discord a fair bit lately, and obviously people talk about it in in subreddits and whatnot, but. You know, not getting too bogged down in the tuning of classic and, you know, will they or won't they, blah, blah, blah. Just presuming that everything's going to be as it is. Um, some people still seem to be hesitant to believe that some bosses in Molten Core are getting taken down in sub 60, sub 30 seconds by great guilds. You just said this is a 20 second fight and I'm sure it's one of a few in Molten Core that is pretty quick with you guys talk to us with a bit about the speed at which you're taking down some of these bosses yeah i'm pretty sure every fight in the instance um with exception to rag most of the time is less than 60 seconds and even 60 seconds would be pushing out on a lot of fights like lucifer yeah, as we said no. it's like a 20 second fight Gehennis, uh shaz is is very very short i mean they're all just really really easy and short um yeah, Shaz, like, when you get the gear for Shaz, it's like 15 seconds. Right, and it's the same thing with Gar, but I think Gar would probably be the the second longest fight in the instance until you get, or actually probably the third behind Domo, until you start getting gear and can just do risky strats where you just kill the boss and let the adds be tanked by one person or two. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely gets exponentially shorter <laughs> as you start getting gear and consumables and world buffs. 
I guess it's going to be dependent on what, what gear you've got. But let's say, okay, let me put you in the following situation. Let's say you haven't got any gear from Molten Core itself. Let's say you go in with, you know, pre-BIS or whatever. And let's say I give you an, an all-star team of your favorite players, your best raiders, you know, the expendables of classic World of Warcraft. How long would it take you to go through Molten Core? It really depends on the server and how things are scripted, but yeah, I'd say like if we had an all-star group of players, um, it'd probably be around 30 minutes, between 30 and 40 minutes, I would say. It also depends like, on how far through the server it is, right? Because of like oh, yeah, how many, pretty- like if it's the first week, if you if you don't have enough essences, right? Like it, like a lot of the time gating in the first MC clear is if you have enough people with the rep to have equal essences. Because really, like Grizzly's first MC clear was tangibles. like it was like just Doctor Christie, right? With there was three, all of, three people. There was three. Okay, three people. Yeah, now, that had uh, revered in order to get the contestants. Yeah, talk to me a bit more about that. I have no idea what you're talking about. What's this thing that you're farm rep for to get? In order to summon Major Domo, and in turn, Domo would summon Rag after you, you know, kill all of Domo's ads. You need to douse the runes. There's a rune at every single, essentially every, for every single boss, uh, aside from Demon Rag, um, that you need to douse. And in order to get access to this contestants, you have to complete a quest chain and yeah. you need to be, as I, I misspoke before, it's actually honored, not revered in order to get the contestants. And you have to, you can only carry one at a time, and you have to get it in as Shara from a, a guy on like a very isolated island, and <laughs> which makes for um, an, a very long trip if you only have three people or two or even one person that's doing it. Uh, it's interesting. Okay, fair enough. Now, North, I'll ask you. We, we're just back on that speed point. And, you know, AK obviously saying that the vast majority of these encounters are really quite blasé. You know, you do them in your sleep if you're experienced, blah, blah, blah. What do you think the average raider in Classic will experience as they, you know, difficulty-wise as they try to go through Molten Core? Do you think it's – are you one of those people who still signs up to, well, we're all more experienced MMO players now, so they'll find it quite easy? Or do you think that, no, the average player is still pretty shitty, they'll struggle as Blizzard intended? It really depends, I think, and, and I think a lot of people would agree with me on this, on who is leading. Because at the end of the day, it's not very hard to actually go through these encounters, especially in Molten Core, even BWL. If you're prepared, if you know what to do, it's not like it's this crazy button combination to down the bosses in a reasonable amount of time. Um, I think right, if, if you had, even with you know 39 of the anti-expendables of Vanilla World of Warcraft, if you had someone like AK who knows exactly what of you know a minor amount of resistance gear for Ragnaros in terms of what consumes you need early on when the healers can't just you know when you can't brute force every mechanic with enough damage enough plus healing uh, to just ignore them if you have someone who actually knows what they're doing at the helm of you know 39 average players I think they'll do really well but if you just don't know that's the issue so I mean like we see on Northdale there are guilds who like Heroes Never Die, a, a guild led by people who don't have any experience in vanilla really at all, um, and they kind of don't seek that information, even though it's available. Had they done that, though, you'll have an easy time. If people don't want to struggle, they really, really won't. So we do really have that amount of information, especially with you know specs being changed, where there are people knowing how to DPS. Well, like AK said, you know, if he could go back, he'd change probably that one thing, knowing what to talent, knowing what to spec, because it makes 
fights infinitely more, uh, you know, trivial when you can, you know, one phase Ragnaros, you don't have to go through, you know, three suns phases where ads spawn and you have to kill them and you have this, you know, healer burden of a 10 minute fight versus a two minute fight. So, Mm. Ail, I'll come back to you now, just finishing up on Lucifron. Now, please do correct me if I'm wrong. Once again, please don't kill me. Never been through a raid, but talking about that loot table that Lucifron offers up, and this is really that first interaction the players have with um, tiers in a way, in that this is tier one, am I right? Yeah, after patch, I think 1.4, it was only tier one. Right, exactly. So, well, I guess, well, in if we get 1.12 with classic, then we'll get a little bit of a different loot table, is that right? Uh, no, it should be the, it should just be tier one and, and things like Mainly the yeah, before, before they added tier two to like before they were planning BWL, uh, before the MC loot update, you could actually what he's referring to is you could get tier two pieces, all of tier two from Molten Core, I believe. Right. Right. Other yeah, than that's, other that's than great. other than the Anixia helm, you could get every single piece of tier two randomly off of all the bosses they just had shared loot tables. All right. Well let's tier pieces. Let's focus on tier one for now. And Ale, what do you think? Which class, uh, this might be a really, really fucked up open question to ask, but which class do you think has the most to gain from their tier one in Molten Core? Maybe priests, just due to the to the raw stats, the spirit, and the intellect, and uh, the set bonus is pretty decent. I think for a lot of other classes, a lot of the updated gear that's come after is actually equivalent, or some in some cases even better. Probably AK would be best. Uh, to speak to this as he's done more raid leading, but I know a lot of our priests were certain pieces and like especially the uh, the staff and things like that. I think the hunter set's um, pretty good too. The yeah, hunter but, set I mean, probably but, is the best, yeah. Uh, but you guys are forgetting like a pretty major part of uh, tier Tanking. one giving to tanks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean... Yeah, obviously, like some of the set bonuses are really good for other classes, like the three set for priests with the uh, decreased flash shield time. The hunters uh, AP, I think, is like increased multi shot damage. And then I think on some servers, like the is it five piece Earth Fury for shamans, I think is like an extra. I forget what what the or three piece. It's extra totem length or distance i think range covers. yeah increases yeah, total range. range that's the word yeah um, and the eight piece for shamans is actually really really good it's like an extra thing to well, chain here or something no it's it's it essentially makes your your healing wave like a chain heal but it decreases by like a ton on your second target and and i think it goes to a third target but it decreases a lot there on the starius actually it didn't decrease at all so every shaman was using it like through BWL, like if you didn't have a piece, like oh, okay, really dumb. But I heard that um, it was really good. Fixing so. it. Yeah, they ended up fixing it for um, Elysium. So, but yeah, I mean, in my mind, I think like if you're going into that first molten core and you're looking for tier one, like you, you're you're looking for tank tier one. You're looking for might for sure. Um, you know, more tank gear the better. North, outside of that tier table, sort of the tier items that we're finishing up with Lucifron, do you look at something like that Ring of Spell Power with its 33 uh, increase to uh, magical spells and effects, the damage and healing, uh, and going as a mage, like that's something you definitely fucking want? Uh, no, actually, there's, funnily enough, there's a clip of me um, from a few weeks ago, and I don't know where it is, but uh, I'd have to dig it up uh, on my stream, getting that item 
uh, from my loot council and my alliance guild and being pretty, like I was angry from other things earlier <laughs> in the day. I just died and I lost my world buffs. And I was really fucking mad that they wow. gave me that item. Um, because as much as like you look at it on the surface, it is a very good item for PVE. It is, it is fantastic. Um, but in terms of what you can get in that, in that instance that can really feed into PVP items, you have things like the Man Igniting Cord, you have the Talisman of Ephemeral Power, uh, you have Choker of the Fire Lord, all items that give an insane amount of stats and also give good PVP stats. They have Stam, they have Int or their Trinkets, right? A used Trinket that's very rare. And, you know, sort of the only one early on in the form of uh, Toap or Talisman Ephemeral Power, like I mentioned. You have so many good items, and then, you know, you have this item that's only for PvE. It's only for raiding. You're not going to use it outside of it, largely speaking. As much as it is good for that, it's something that I, I really... And some people like it, but I, I really don't like it. Well, I'll keep you going on that Talisman of Ephemeral... Uh, I can't even say it. Ephemeral Power, which I have just heard of for the first time since you mentioned it, and luckily that drops from the next boss that we're going to talk about, which is Magmadar. And I've just seen it on the loot table, and I'm sitting here looking at it as you're talking, going, holy shit, that looks OP. Yeah, it is very, very strong, especially if you get it early on. It's actually shared through, um, I think, several... I'm not sure which bosses, but it's like more of the big ticket bosses can... Uh, drop it so I think Baron can drop it, Magmadar can drop it, Golemag can drop it. I'm not sure which it's shared through, but like the good, um, like the solid pieces added in 1.4, uh, for casters are largely speaking shared through the bigger bosses, um, before Major Domo. Okay. Just if people listening aren't aware, Talisman of Ephemeral... Again, can't say it. You'd think I could. Ephemeral Power increases damage and healing done by magical spells and effects by up to 175 for 15 seconds with a one and a half minute cooldown. Ale, I'll turn back to you. Now, as we talk about that trinket, you have played yes. a mage as well. Is there anything that North didn't mention that you're really gunning for as a caster here in Molten Core? Uh, well, that I know that's the, the big cornerstone. <laughs> cornerstone Grimoire. I know the cornerstone piece. What does a mage look for? What does a mage look for in in MC if not the mage blade? I mean, you want yeah, mage blade. Which one? Who does, uh, the belt? Who does the mage? What's the mage blade? Who does that drop from? It's from Golemag. Ah, Golemag. Yeah, he he drops uh, two kind of DPS caster items: the uh, the staff and the mage. I can't remember the name of the staff. The staff of dominance. Staff of dominance. Staff of dominance. Yeah. And uh, they're both pretty good. Funny enough, they have kind of similar like spell power stats, but you know because the mage blade is a one hander, you can have an offhand with it. It's actually so good that a lot of pallies even want it due to the crit, which is always frustrating as a mage. Yeah. They sometimes have people getting that. Yeah, the, you 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 just don't give that to paladins over <laughs> over yeah. casters. Just, they, you just it's a big it. fuck you to the casters in the kill. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, really interesting. Originally, uh, the trinkets, they didn't share, uh, they didn't have a cooldown that overlapped originally in Classic. So Trinket Mage was kind of like a swear word back then, like saying you're a low-skill, no-skill player if you had this trinket and the uh, Hero Charm, because you could pop both at the same time with Arcane Power and just like two-shot anybody. Okay. And they, they had to nerf that originally, which was actually something that was pretty cool. I miss it. Hmm. Okay, I'll just come back to you real quick, just on something you raised just then, talking about, you know, what you wouldn't would not give a pally and, you know, how it might sort of incense the casters a little bit. As a raid leader, again, you know, I'm presuming, tell me if I'm wrong, that you would have been involved in perhaps a loot council. 
What were the main arguments, that, if any, that came up in Molten Core in regards to, oh, this should be a hunter item, or this should be a caster item, and whatnot? Uh, there wasn't really a whole lot of that um, in Molten Core. Um, typically, you, you prioed certain pieces to certain classes rather than others. Uh, and there was, I guess there were certain items like maybe like a striker's mark should that go to a warrior or a rogue first and i mean there's other things like you could even go as far as like band of Acuria. it's like well do we need this to go to a tank right now or can we just funnel it to a rogue um i guess mo- the more the bigger issue i i would say is who deserves it most um in a loot council situation rather than you know which class i think there's like certain clear cut items that go to certain classes but there's others where it's like okay you know it wouldn't be so bad if like a rogue or a warrior got this like melee item or a major warlock got this trinket so see that's that's kind of the interesting thing with you because i feel like with grizzly everybody's kind of on the same wavelength in, a, in regards to that where i think for the majority of people who are going to play classic for the first time there's going to be huge issues with loot because compared to today where everything is so on rails like the loot is all over the place. There's different stats on different things. You know, different people may want different things just because they can equip it. And I know that that can cause like huge issues with guilds. Like for example, like I said, previously even in my guild, which was like an above average guild on a private server, there was a huge deal about pallies wanting, you know, mage blade, robo volatile power, talisman of film power, things like that. And it, you know, it does cause a lot of issues, right? And if you don't have good ways to handle that, like, who's to say your raid leader just doesn't take it, right? And then you run into an issue. You had pallies gunning after Toop? Yeah. Damn, that's <laughs> some creepy yeah. fucking paladin. <laughs> you just really have to, I mean, to kind of answer what you're, what you're going for there. Um, and it, you just kind of really sucks. just put your foot down and establish, like, what's prior and what you're not going to get like for example towards the end of our time on lightbringer um we were at a point where literally every one of our casters had an f tier out of bwl not to dive from mc but every one of our casters had an f tier out of bwl or off of nef and we ended up giving nef tier i think we ended up getting two paladins with it but yeah i mean it's really really good on healers but at the same time it's like it would be a huge slap in the face to give it to a healer over a cat Mm. Right. Sometimes it's really tough. Like, for example, I know for us, we struggled to get enough paladins. So it's, it's, it's like kind of you're, you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. He's like, ah, oh, we really want this guy to raid with us. You know, we need the blessings, but it's like at the same time, if we give him this, we're going to lose like our DPS casters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm with you, Ale, in that I completely agree that there's going to be some dramas over this kind of stuff. Now, maybe not um, for you guys, North AK, you're going to be running with a shit-hot guild that will know their stuff. But, you know, I keep reminding people, and I'm sure you guys will be on board with this, that, you know, the people that listen to this podcast, the people that are frequenting um, subreddits now, all this time before the release of Classic, we are the vast, vast minority you know, the people who have collated their information, who know the game relatively well, um, not necessarily putting myself in that class, but, you know, you guys who call onto the show and all of that jazz, you know what items should go to which classes. And then, you know, obviously, if, a, if an item could go to multiple classes, you know who it really should go to at the end of the day. There's going to be a 
crap load of players who either are coming back from retail just to check it out or who are just really casual players or who are playing for the first time who don't know a lot of this stuff and they'll have presumptions and the arguments will just flow from, hey man, fuck you, I say that should go to my class. Uh, fuck you, it should go to my class. I think all that that stuff is coming, but also I think that's what makes classic classic. Definitely. Our uh, our raid lead originally was uh, a resto druid, but he had you know secret balance aspirations, so he did snag a couple of those items, and it was you know that level of frustration. And like like I said, we were like an above average guild, you know our MC clears were usually under an hour, um, and we, like we still ran into like problems with this. And I, I don't know if it's because private server or people just gonna do what they're gonna do, but it was pretty frustrating. Hmm. All right, anyone got any final notes on Magmadar? Any fond memories from the fight or anything of note to sort of touch on? Sorry, there's one thing I want to touch on on Lucifron really quickly. Oh, yeah, go for it, man. Um, prior to the itemization change, there was actually a really interesting item that dropped from, from him. Choker that, of Enlightenment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. A do you wanna, wonderful, do you wanna, wonderful item. Um, wanna, yeah, actually, can I, can I talk about this? I think this is one of, as, as a mage, I think this is such an exciting item pre-itemization combined with uh, or even in the absence of, but also combined with um, Spirit of Aquamentis, it reduces, both of these items reduced the mana cost of spells. It was really, really, really amazing for healers, especially that used to downrank casts. Um, but no one here is a healer. I'm, I'm, I'm a mage. It's great. You can heal You know your lower casts. It's fantastic. But as a mage, you could cast rank one spells for either next to nothing or free. Um, and I'm not sure how it works and, you know, if it's a private server shenanigans, but actually when you reduce rank one Frostbolt below the threshold of zero mana, when it costs zero mana, it doesn't actually interrupt your spirit regen because you're not spending mana. So like oh, the five wow. second rule in terms of casting doesn't apply. And I'm not sure if that's like private server shenanigans or if that's actually supposed to happen, but it's considered not casting because you're not spending any mana. So you can just indefinitely rank one Frostbolt until the end of time while regening fully. Um, in combat regen, which is kind of ridiculous. You know, they had to nerf it because of how good it was for healers, because healers could, you know, if you pair up, I believe it was 25 each, it was 50, oh, it might have been more than that, actually. Um, and, but it made low-level casts essentially free. And I think that's why Blizzard, when they did the redid the itemization, ended up removing, you know, those... Um, you know, those suffixes or whatever from the items is because it was so problematic for them to balance and cause all sorts of like gameplay issues. So it was kind of interesting that they originally had that in there, you know, to begin with, but then it caused so much problems that they had to remove or like change how that item is. And that early on as well, like it wasn't like a later decision, right? It wasn't like Lupos in 1.9, like from the very get go, right? It was changed in 1.4, 1.3, um, I believe maybe even maybe even DM I I forget if it was DM patch or, or the uh, MC update, but they recognized it way early on that this was a pretty big deal. I think it was DM patch, but yeah, um, in classic, uh, it's definitely not going to be a, as you mentioned. It's not going to yeah. really be a caster prior. It's definitely going to probably like you know for alliance of paladin or for horde or priest. I mean, it's probably not even going to be on those stats though, right? I I doubt they'll even have that stuff in. Yeah. But- all right, and uh, sorry, AK, we'll just tie off. You, you had something to say on Magmadar, did you? Yeah, um, I guess Magmadar is pretty interesting. Uh, I mean, <laughs> going further into the server, it's like a cakewalk, but in the beginning, it's actually kind of fun, like your first time at MC, just because he has this ability called Frenzy, where um, 
when you kill Lucifron, he'll drop the Tome of Tranquilizing Shot, which teaches one hunter in your raid Tranquilizing Shot. And you have to use Tranquilizing Shot on Magbandar to dispel this frenzy, which is like an increased I think it's like increased attack speed and increased damage, like fifty percent or hundred percent or something. Um and <laughs> before Nestarius, um going into Nestarius People didn't think that it would be possible to do week one. So people would, like, we weren't actually even the first guild to go into MC. There was, I think, another guild that went into MC before us, and they just didn't even bother trying it because they didn't think it would be possible because you only have one hunter with a trank when you need, like, two or three in order to, you know, totally minimize frenzy. And, I mean, it's interesting on different servers because you can always, like, rotate tanks out with shield walls during frenzy when when your hunter... Is it on cooldown? Just makes it for an interesting fight in the beginning, but after that, it's 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 fairly uh it's fairly boring. Okay, now Al, I'll just come back to you for a second because I promised we talked about we would talk about this at the start, and we've kind of lightly touched on it, but we'll just sort of finish it up now in terms of we, you guys sort of mentioned pre and post nerf molten core. Now, Al, you may have gone through that back in the day. Do you want to talk to us a bit more about that? Uh, that's going to be pretty difficult, actually, because, like I said, when I played at the time, it was, um, you know, so long ago. Mm-hmm. I know that the things that really, really affected us were a lot of the trash spawns, they changed. So when you killed, um, like, I think when you kill Magmadar, there's certain, um, core hounds that stop spawning. You kill Gar, and there's certain ragers. I think it's ragers that stop spawning. I know for us as a guild, we were stuck on Ragnaros until he was uh, fixed. I think the first few guilds that actually were able to kill him stacked rogues. So at that time, we had, um, I think we'd gone up to 12 rogues in an attempt to try and kill him. Because at that time, I think just based on the way the class balance was and things like that, rogues had the highest DPS and it was a huge DPS race. Um, so for us, um, like we, we couldn't even kill Rag until he was uh, nerfed slightly. And uh, I'm trying to think if I can remember any other changes that really, really affected it. Um, I know, I know. Did you do it prior like, to one point? Did you do it prior to 1.3? Kill like Rag before they made it so that you could teleport in they, where you had to actually like run in through black, like through BRD. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Annoying. Yeah, no, annoying that, bit of travel. That was frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. You eventually, um, they added a, a, a quest where you, I think you get a piece of the molten core and then you take it to a, uh, a blood elf who's kind of sitting outside of BRD just at the bottom of a chain and you turn it into him and then it'll allow you, he'll allow you to teleport directly into the molten core. So I think everybody who goes through, uh, BRD the first time should really pick up that quest to make sure that you can uh, get that attunement, right? Cause otherwise, you know, you have to do BRD, like a lava run, in order to get in. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, I just wanted to touch on that briefly because I remember um, I, I mentioned that I, I wanted to not get through this whole thing without touching on that at least a little bit. But let's move on, guys. Let's get on to uh, – we've got a fair few more to get through. We'll burn through some of them. Uh, Gehenna's. Now, again, uh, as I talked about, one of the um, same models that we get for about uh, a number of bosses through this uh, instance – Anything particularly um, noteworthy about Gehenna's, or again, is this a bit of a ho-hum encounter? It's pretty cake. I would say <laughs> the one thing, I guess there's two things with that fight. The one is, you know, making sure people move out of the rain of fire. <laughs> uh, some people just don't see it on their screen, I guess. I, I don't know. But, um, and the other thing is, if you're, you know, doing, I guess, a more risky pull of Gehenna's, some people 
people could accidentally pull. Uh, usually there's like a mob that's standing right next to Gehennis that you could easily avoid, but some people are just dumb and want to like go behind an ad or a boss to do damage before it's like actually in position and accidentally ass pull like uh, like a Fire Lord or something. And then <laughs> the Fire Lord will spawn lava spawns and lava spawns and lava spawns, you end up wiping. And then I've, I've seen it just too many times. So Fair enough. Well, look, let's go uh, straight on to Gar. And um, there's sort of like, I feel when we talk about Molten Core, there's not too many of the bosses are really mentioned or bothered to be talked about a lot. You know, everyone talks about Ragnaros, that's fine. But I feel like Gar and maybe Baron Geddon get a little bit of chatter. Um, do you guys feel that like, that way? Or I mean, again, Gar might be pretty easy, but do you feel like it's a, a fun encounter or just, again, pretty sort of just a cakewalk? The two are more interactive bosses, I think, compared to the rest of the, you know, the instance prior to even Major Domo, right? Because aside from, right, aside from, wait, like all of the like Flame Walker looking bosses, as you mentioned, that share a model, right? Um, Lucifron, Gehennis, Sulfron are essentially run in AOE, don't die, like don't stand in the shit uh, fights that, you know, don't even have that much. Whereas Baron, right, you have the Ignite Mana, you have like these periods of, um, of whatever his Hellfire ability is. Gar, you have the adds to deal with, which presents a challenge. They're also both of the Thunder Fury uh, boss drops, so uh, binding drops anyway. So I think, you know, compared to most of the other fights in the first seven, or is it eight bosses? I forget how many you have to do before Tomo, but those bosses, um, aside from Baron and Gar, are actually pretty boring, so I think that's why they get a little more chatter. Yeah, I think I think North, you really nail it on there. Like, there's there's mechanics on the fight as well as really important loot that drops from these two bosses that have people excited. And I think AK touched on a bit earlier is that you know the ads they explode when you kill them. Sometimes they can rend- explode at certain points in the fight for Gar, which I think a lot of people find you know pretty fun because they explode and they actually do this crazy knockback that shoots you like I don't know fifty feet. Um, you know, it can, it can fire you right into trash, you know, if you're doing, you know, a speed run and you're not pulling everything. And so like having that happen, you know, it can be really fun, really funny to happen to see, see it happen. I know later on when people are dicking around, sometimes they'll pull an ad on top of people who are, you know, maybe AFK or not paying attention and like send them firing off across the room. And, uh, you know, with, with, um, Baron, it's the same thing, like with the bomb, when you explode, it shoots you way up in the air, right? So that that's always fun to get that. And, you know, sometimes screw up and wipe people, which I'm sure doesn't happen anymore for you guys. <laughs> oh, it, there's always a good chance of it happening. <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely, to kind of bounce but off of what they were saying, there's definitely a lot of, um, as far as being a raid leader is concerned, a lot of microwing on that fight, and even more especially as a tank, like communicating you know, when the boss is at 50% and that's when he can start exploding his ads and when to manage your cooldowns correctly as a tank. Even, you know, healers, you have to be max range away from all the ads so that you don't get blown up if, if Gar decides to blow up one of his ads before he hits zero. Um, it's definitely an interesting fight. There's some, as I said, like, you know, an hour ago or whenever he started, there's, there's some funny videos out there of people wiping on Gar. Um, one of uh, one of my guildmates on Nostarius made a really funny video of um, the guild Nope wiping on Gar over and over and over when they were the first guild actually in Molten Core, but they didn't obviously get Ragnaros first. Uh, my guild did, so he made a really funny video of them of them wiping over and over on Gar because they said it was really easy and they uh, clearly didn't have an easy time. <laughs> Good stuff. Now 
Someone brought it up. I, I figured we would be remiss not to go into it at least a little bit. We've talked about it on the show before. But now that I've got the three of you here, anyone jump in on this one. Talk to me about Thunder Fury and the bindings. Anyone got any crazy stories about trying to get those through here? We actually, just today, um, I was running, I was uh, on Northdale, um, uh, and our guild has, a lot of guilds like have one or two Thunder Furies already. We're on AQ patch, uh, and we didn't have one. And we haven't gotten the best loot in the past few weeks, but we went through BWL and MC today. We got a Maladath, a Chromatically Tempered Sword, um, a Mishundare, a Claw of Chromagus, and then we were like, oh my god, this is amazing loot from BWL. It's almost all the weapons. We got an Ash, Ash Candy as well. And uh, we walked into Molten Core, and we needed the second binding off of uh, Baron, and we got it, finally, after, um, you know, most of the server has already gone us past, so we finally, it's not, it's not the craziest story, but um, a good day of loot, and, yeah. and we finally fucking have a tank with it, so feels good to AoE again. Yeah, one of those good loot days, I love it. Man, my, my experiences are just depression, because um, it might be the item that changed the most during Classic, so I know starting out, I think we gave our first two or three to rogues and then it turned into just this insane tank item or people didn't know that it was such a great tank item. And so we ended up having ours on rogues and some of them had quit and we had a binding on somebody else who sold their account and just all sorts of stuff like that. So it got to a point where we didn't have a tank with Thunder Fury and that's a huge disadvantage uh, as far as aggro and everything goes. And so we ended up merging with another guild who pretty much for the primary reason that they had two tanks with Thunder Fury and the rest of their guys were kind of, you know, not so great, but like we're just like salivating over getting, you know, two tanks who could really hold aggro well with Thunder Fury. Um, I'm with you on the depression part, um, but not exactly related. Uh, I've been playing on private servers and retail for, you know, I guess retail MC. I did probably somewhere in the double digits of Molten Core, but probably in the hundreds now within added private server Molten Cores. And I've tanked on several private servers as well. And I've never seen a Baron binding drop ever. And, uh, I've seen probably like a dozen car drops and I've never had it. I've never had uh, a tank in my guild habit, which I mean, made things a little more difficult, like an AQ and then Nax on Lightbringer. But it's, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely a tough spot for me because I've, I've never, never seen it. It's always an item I wanted to have because it would just make things so much easier. Would um, you do split runs at all? Cause like we, I know we did that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and and uh, we, I think one time in, I think it happened both, one time on Kronos 2, we had a Gar Binding drop three weeks in a row. And the same thing happened on Lightbringer 2. We had a Gar Binding drop three weeks in a row, but we've we've never seen Molten Core Binding. But yeah, we we did split runs for a while on Lightbringer and it just, just never dropped. I don't know what it is. I guess I'm cursed. <laughs> yeah, like the importance of this item, Josh, like when you get later on and like Nax and things um, for, for aggro. What our guild did is we actually would run multiple MCs per week. I think up to three or four, uh, with like 10 to 15 people going only to do these two bosses and we'd split up all the tanks between them because we wanted to get, you know, Thunder Fury, right? Mm. Like that's like a really in-depth min-max thing, but, um, you know, being able to have that level of DPS to be able to do it with like such a small amount. 
it was it was actually pretty fun and and really challenging. But yeah, it, it's like it's such a crucial item for later in rating, and like that like that's another example of an item where you know at the time when it drops, it is insane for a rogue. It's really great, but moving forward in the game, it's clearly should be on you know your main tank, your yeah. off tank. And one of the more interesting world first races, I think, as well. We talk about bosses and everything, but I think the guilds will be busting their hums to be that guild that gets Thunder Fury first as well. So I'm looking forward to that one when Classic drops. Guys, it's random though, right? It's it's random. Like they each have like a four totally percent drop, so it yeah, could be yeah, anybody, yeah. right? The, yeah, but like one of the on worst guilds on our on our server right now, like who constantly gets memed on and can't even enter the instance half the time because people will just camp them because they can't as forty people manage to even get to the instance. They have two Thunder Furies. Our guild had none up till now. Like we, we you know, our, our clear times are half of theirs. And, you know, you sometimes you fucking lose the luck of the draw. Maybe mm. an AK who sees 12 guard bindings. Hopefully we have that luck reversed on classic. <laughs> yeah, really. I, will, you know, I just want to put, I just want to have that one would be, that would be the best fresh theory. to have it on. Yeah, exactly. That's the one that matters most. But uh, exactly. on retail, the first ever I played on, um, I leveled a mage to 60. I played on US Storm Reaver, right? We had this guild on Horde who was probably the I guess the second best guild on the server, maybe third. They in one run got two bindings and the IS Sulfurus and all oh, one guy got it. Oh man, it was Fuck a legendary man. run. Fuck yeah, yeah, they must have was... like sacrificed a goat before the run or something. <laughs> exactly. I think I think we've seen it maybe once or twice on private servers. Not obviously not my guild, but I've seen like on realm players. Right. Uh, some guilds have had it happen. Well, let, let's burn through it. We've got a few more to go, but I don't want to hold you guys up all night. So we'll just uh, go lightly through a few more of the accountants. But I, I want to spend a bit of time on on Rag when we get to him. But we we already mentioned it lightly already. Baron Geddon, does anyone have anything sort of really noteworthy to say? Move out if you have the bomb. <laughs> That's it. That's all you got to do. I think, <laughs> I think he's probably the funnest fight. Most fun fight in Molten Core, yeah? I, I would I would say as a non-DPS like DPS whore, like... Just from a fun point, because you got to be accountable, you know, watching for that debuff. When you get it, it's fun. You know, you got to run out. It's really easy to wipe the raid, your whole group, if you stay in with that. Um, there's a point where you have to run out anyways when he starts doing those, like, fire fart clouds. And, yeah, fire like, fart I, 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 yeah. That's huh. ah, a warlock ability. Right? I've just never heard, I've never heard Hellfire described that. Hellfire, there you go. It's I mean, always I mean, interesting but, with melee uh, trying to stay in for those, and it just almost never works. <laughs> right. All right, we'll move on to Shazro, guys. We just talked about how Ale thinks that Baron Geddon is the most fun fight in Modern Core. Uh, let's move on to Shazro. Would Shazro be the most boring, or would you nominate someone else for the most boring fight in Modern Core? It's hmm, up there. I haven't really thought about that. It's definitely it's up, up there. there. I think Lucifer's probably more boring. Um, no, I don't think so. Not not because I mean, because like at least as a caster, like you have this, you know, like you can properly like get a bunch of precasts off, which actually does kind of tip the fight. Um, you know, like with less explosions. Fun. Yeah, actually, Gehenna's has no mind control, and there's no real important like the decurse is important, but it's just you kind of just move. But, I mean, you have to fap as well. Like, there's you know, there's some mechanics there that. And you don't have to like kind of weasel through the trash, whereas you don't have to on Lucifron so much. You kind of just, you know, he's there and you you come and you're like, hey, Lucifron, and then he, you know, falls over and dies. Yeah, depending on like how your guild stamps him, I think he definitely can be the most boring. Like I know for us originally, we wouldn't have melee go in. They would just like stay out all, yep. 
Yeah, that and, was not a melee fight. Yeah, and so like you're kind of just there, like gaining bow skill, right? And <laughs> you know, just waiting for it to be over. Oddly enough, my guild did that on Broodlord too. There wasn't, there was no melee allowed on Broodlord. <laughs> All right, AK Sulfuron, how quickly do you take him down? Um, I mean, yeah, in the beginning when you don't have any gear, it's, you know, I guess one of the longer fights, uh, just because you have to separate them, uh, at least have one separate from the other three adds and just so that they don't heal each other. Um, and then just like Zerg it down. I mean, it can take a while, but I mean, again, it's not like a very exciting fight by any means. There's not really very many, many exciting fights at Molten Core, but you know, once you start getting gear, you can stack them all on top of each other and the boss and you just pop a free action potion and is a, the boss does an AOE stun or knockback, I should say, or knockdown. I think it is. So if you use a free action potion, you, you know, it, it avoids that because I think it's technically a stun. Um, and you can just go up and everyone pops a goblin saber charge and mages AOE, warlocks hellfire and warriors rogues, you know, pop their cooldowns and do their blade flurries and whirlwinds. And you kill the ads like within like, 15 10 15 seconds and then go on the boss but it's a it's a pretty uh, boring fight i would say i have a i have an interesting loot story actually from uh shaz it was it was pretty neat our, our first uh our first time through we actually had a 58 dwarf priest come in with us and he managed to get the the wand drop which is one of the few items in MC that has a requirement below 60, level 58. And so him getting that wand, it's like a 70 DPS wand. And for anyone who's like, le- who's leveled a priest know that you spend a ton of time like wanding. You know, you basically like dot, shield, and wand. And so him getting that was like such a huge buff. He's like, see, I don't know how I can ever level a priest again these last two levels because having like a 70 DPS wand was just like insane. He was a machine gun. Yeah, those are those are pretty funny. Yeah, with the Crimson Shocker or whatever it's called. The Crimson Shocker, yeah. All right, guys, real quick, Golemag. Anyone got anything fun on this one? And uh, one thing I want to talk about, well, first I'll say, does anyone have anything interesting to say about Golemag? But then I want to follow it up with, I'm sitting here staring at the loot tables, and as you guys have mentioned, it's pretty much, there's a lot of shared loot amongst a lot of these bosses. And I'm looking at all these patterns and recipes and formulas that drop in, on top of Golemag, if anyone has anything to say, does anyone have anything that they would pick as the one profession that has the most to earn out of Molten Core? Enchanting. Definitely. For sure. For sure enchanting. The plus 30 spell power and plus, was it, 55 healing, is are they're very, very important enchants. Are you not including like Lionheart in that, in that list of potential things, or are we just thinking like MC-specific drops? Uh, I mean, yeah, you could include Lionheart, but I mean, that's one item. But enchanting, like, you have these two very important enchants. I, I guess I, I haven't really thought about it, like, too much for the question, so I couldn't, couldn't say. <laughs> I, I, would, ag- I would agree like, with the enchants. Like, those are used the entire course of the game, and if you don't get those, like, in guild, you know, you're going to have to be paying for those from somebody yeah, else. Yeah, that's true. Early on, early on, any of the patterns are going to be really, really valuable. It depends on what kind of server you're on as well. Um, like with, you know, if you're on a private server with a bunch of tryhards getting something like a Lionheart helmet that everyone's going to want immediately, which, it, how long is Lionheart Biss? Isn't Lionheart like always? The whole game. The whole game. Biss? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you get a best of slot helmet for warriors, um, you know, throughout the game. Obviously, the, the enchants are Biss as well, uh, for casters and healers in, in form of the healing power and the spell power. But warriors particularly are a breed, um, on private servers in particular that will spend enormous amounts of money to do to do the damage that they love to do. So early on, I think you, you stand to make more money 
uh, from the line hearts, but later on, a lot of people will have them, so it won't really matter. Whereas, you know, you keep needing more enchants. So I think over the course course of a server, the enchants are probably better. But early on, I, I would take a line heart over anything in terms of a pattern. It's a good argument to have for sure. But yeah, I, I think both are very, very valuable for sure. Both both enchants and the line. All right. How about uh, so we'll go Golemag the Incinerator. Cool name, bro, but is he basic? Yeah, pretty pretty basic. I mean, the only thing you really have to watch out for is the amount of stacks that you get if you're meleeing the boss. <laughs> um, there's some, you know, if you're not killing it quick enough, you can stack up pretty high if you're a melee uh, or a tank. So, but it, it's it's fairly boring. There's nothing really very excited about it. But I think North pointed out earlier, looking through the uh, lava to Ragnaros <laughs> uh, through the hole there, yeah. it's probably yep. the most exciting part of that area. <laughs> and, there, and there's always someone who says, "Oh, can I?" Can I pull him from up here? And yeah, everybody says sure. yes, and you still do it anyway. So, like, you kind of you run across this bridge where you see him down below first. And certain classes are able to target him. I think like hunters, maybe mages with range, and like they wonder if you can actually pull him. What will happen if they do? He comes running all the way around the corner, brings all the trash with him, and just wipes everybody. Some guilds have actually like managed to pull off um, jumping down on Golemag from above the bridge. Which just seems so fucking ballsy to me, and just seems like not worth the trouble. Like, like yeah, you just you just like you know you're on the bridge and you just you're like, all right, everyone pop your slow fall, and then everyone just you know like fucking mission impossible, like repels down the the side of the fucking mountain, and uh, you know goes gung ho on Golemag. Like, I imagine that would probably make it a lot more fun. But yeah, Golemag probably you know my one of my fondest memories is uh, you know anecdotally anyway um, in early vanilla. I guess it was late vanilla. It was early vanilla to me. Was you know looking through that hole, everyone being like, "Yeah, look, you can see Ragnaros." And I was like, "Wow, the Fire Lord!" You know, and I like uh, you know sprinted up as fucking gnome rogue that I was and just died in one shot because I had what two k, two and a half k health. Josh, do you know what that is? What he's talking about? No the idea. The window behind him. Oh, okay, we'll we'll have to show you first time you're in there. Yeah, he'll he'll be able to see Rag through yeah. the window. <laughs> you have to do it at least once. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, for sure. Because Ale, you we took me through. You. you took me through Nax after we did our Nax chat, and I still have not like walked through Molten Core, so it'll be brand new to me in Classic. I can guarantee you that much. Even though I've seen videos, but like I've just seen videos of oh, here's a bit of this encounter and here's a bit of that encounter. I haven't done like the the walking tour of Molten Core, if you will. I haven't yeah, seen the stream don't of do the whole it. thing. Don't do it. Wait, wait for Classic. All right, we'll do. It's the it's the first one you have to wait. All right, we'll do, boys. Let's wind weird. it up. Let let's let's go in for the big boy. Let's talk Major Domo and Rag and that encounter, that very famous encounter. You know, um, everyone sort of has has seen the, I guess the RP event, the the speech that you go through. You know, you summoned me too soon, all that jazz. Talk to me about the first time you went through that. Was it really cool? Was it mind blowing? What, what, what how did you feel? I was amazed the first time. Were we talking about Ragnaros encounter? Yeah. So don't now again. Correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you take down Domo, but then he summons Rag or something like that? Yeah. So, so they're take, yeah technically Go two ahead. different encounters. So after you douse all the runes in Moldencore at every boss, it summons Domo and uh, eight adds. And you go up to where he's at, at the top of MC. And what you do is you kill all the adds, and then Domo freaks out, and he teleports to uh, Ragnaros. And you talk to Domo there, and he summons Ragnaros, because he's, I guess he's like freaking out that he lost uh, all of his yeah. buddies. And he wants to summon Rag to kill us all, but doesn't end up working out that way uh, all the so time. The, 
the the way the lore indicates it's, it's like you he he gives up to us like when you actually talk to him like when you when you get all of his ads dead he's like no no i give up like and 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 like we're trying to presumably breach the fire lord sanctum to kill the fire lord so and then rag is mad that he got summoned because major domo was the only one who could summon rag and he gives up rag rather than like you know us die but then it's like let's kill them my lord and you know then gets fucking one shot so do you north do you still enjoy the encounter after all these years and all these times I mean, I still think it's funny. Like, there are still memes with it, like the two scoop shit. Like, I think there was like a video where it's just like, I don't know, like a fucking meme mashup with like Ragnaros like hitting things with two scoops of ice cream instead of like too soon. It was two scoops. I, I don't know why that that was a thing, but yeah, I mean, it, it it has great loot. It's this really, you know, it is it is like this thing that's like very rooted in Warcraft lore, um, and you know, having. I, I think the overall experience, while like no boss in particular is is so amazing, I think the overall experience of Molten Core is one that really speaks to the RPG elements that made vanilla and and hopefully will make classic so great. It's that you have to you know do this quest, all these quests to get the you know to get the runes to douse, um, sorry to get the douses to you know quench the runes to summon Major Domo, who's the only one capable of summoning Ragnaros, because you know you're really going through the world to try and you know, conquer this raid, right? Like you're, you're in the sanctum of this fire Lord and it really feels that way when you need to, you know, maybe not when you've done it for the 18th time, but you, you have to do all these things as a group, you know, and, and go on these quests to do one thing as a group of 40 people. And I think that it's really special regardless of whether or not any particular boss fight is interesting because of that and how it's interrelated and sort of dependent on you going out in the world and doing those things. Okay. Now, Obviously, if we talk about Rag, we've probably got to talk about, you know, uh, the hand of Rag as well. Any of you guys have anything interesting to say about uh, trying to get this item and using it? I never got it myself, but we have, it's just not really a a very meta item at this point um, for really anybody to use. I think, I guess maybe like early on on Horde as like a warrior or something, I think it would be pretty decent to use, but it's just not really that great outside of that but we got we got a i think we got two eyes on elysium slash Lightbringer. i mean one to a paladin who just never made it even though he said he was going to shout out to you rocks and uh (laughs) we gave the second one to a druid actually who made it within a day because he had a bunch of gold so he bought all the mats and that's the thing about it that's the thing that makes it not that good is that it's so fucking pricey yeah it's it's a really nice looking item that's about it it's really cool, but it's not that good, and it's I mean, really, I gotta, really I gotta fucking expensive. That. Like, I think it's I think it's a great item. It's obviously not best in slot for really any, but it's still like a great item, an iconic item, and I think for a lot of people, it's really exciting to get it. I know, it's, oh for you know, sure. Like, like I know, I know through like the lens that you guys look at, it's you know, it's not best in slot for anybody, so it's you know, not that good or things like that. But it's you know, it's still like a three eighty top end. You know, it's a beast. <laughs> On uh, you know enhanced shaman, um, even in warriors, it can really do a lot of damage. It's super cool, right? I mean, and, and our own biases kind of kind of pour into that because I, I, at least a lot of the servers that I've played on, and, and I'm sure a lot of servers that AK has played on, have had these ranking weapons available very early on. You know, the rank 14 swords, the rank 14 claymore. Even prior to the weapon update, it's a particularly good weapon, and it makes you know the hand of rag not as important. If we see classic where there's no PvP rewards, um, as was mentioned in the classic panel at BlizzCon, there's no PvP rewards until BWL, you know, that's going to be the best two-hander 
correct me if I'm wrong, until then. So that will be the best in slot PvP weapon for warriors. Maybe um, Bone Reaver, but yeah, oh, like, yeah I, actually, I, I agree. actually, yeah, wait, what, what am I, what am I saying? Fucking BRE is going to be with the self armor pen, isn't it? Yeah, never mind. Yeah, you're right. But like, we don't like, really for, know. <laughs> you don't know, right? And for like the other classes, it's still, it's still awesome. Like when you go against, if you go against the warrior using that, you got to be scared no matter who it is, because that thing can really chunk you. Um, I actually did get to use it. Um, I didn't have one myself, but originally in Classic, the, uh, one of our warriors in our guild did craft it. And it's kind of like, it's at least for us, it was like a bonding moment as a guild because it's so much Arcanite to make this. Like, I think the second most, like, is it 50 bars where Thunder Fury is 100? I know Thunder Fury is 100-something. Yeah, uh, yeah so I, I first is 50. 50. Yeah, I think it's, it's 50. 50. And really, the entire guild helps farm to get somebody this because, you know, Arcanite bars, depending on your server, they're 20 to 30 gold pop, you know, it's just so expensive that everybody comes together to help, you know, support getting this, like, this iconic item. And I know for us, like, we crafted it, and then we went and we raided Orgrimmar with it, with kind of, like, our warrior leading the charge, right? And it was just, like, a really, really cool moment. Yeah, shout out to Yassi. He got ours, and uh, I know it was against TOS, but he let me play as warrior a few times, and I just loved popping sweeping strikes with that thing and going to town. And, and as much as it wasn't like, isn't like this, you know, like this, you know, McBiss weapon, like he said, I remember being in Ironforge in vanilla when I was like level 30 or 35. And there was this paladin who eventually, um, I'm not sure who he was, right? I didn't really know anything going on in the server. I was like eight or nine at the time, but he had like full T2. Um, and he had a sulfurous and he just, you know, like walk around Ironforge bridge, you know, kind of just like RP walking. And eventually he would do the same thing with, um, his black resonating crystal. Uh, after AQ was launched, and and I remember just like seeing this paladin in full T2 all the time, uh, you know, with this giant hammer that was like you know fiery and glowing in his back that just you know it looked orange, right? It was it was a proper fucking orange weapon because you know it's it so looked cool. legendary. It's literally his hammer, right? Like I yeah. I don't know, like I'm a warrior and I know like Ash Candy and Bone Reaver Bone Reaver's Edge, but like I have a weakness for this and like if I I play Warrior in Classic like I'm gonna want it and like I don't care call me a noob but like I want an orange hammer like I think it would be sweet so I think that's part of the fantasy though like having the weapons of these bosses you know Thunder on wields you know the Thunder Fury you don't you know you you don't build Thunder Fury when you you know do the bindings of the Windseeker you free uh, like an elemental lord and you steal his fucking weapon that's cool Mm -hmm. that's That's fucking sick very cool. So, Ale, you would say worthy of being a legendary? I think so. It it has some like unique abilities as well. Like when you take melee damage, it like reflects forward back, and there's like a fireball proc. Um, I know you can actually get like multiple procs, like you whirlwind and like you hit two people at once with it. And I I think it's I think it's pretty cool. It's a pretty I, good I really, item for sure. I think so. And yeah, like I think I actually put before there was a cool story that I had with. Um, Gergthok used to have one on our server in uh, vanilla, and he used to uh, farm with it as as resto and or like he'd be in resto gear, I guess, with the hammer. And he was feared because of it, because you know that thing, especially loaded up with wind. All right, guys, that's pretty much it. I, I guess I'll just take some closing thoughts from everyone now. And uh, do you have any? particular goals for Molten Core when Classic comes out. When I say that, I know that might sound funny, but AK, you know, this might sing out to you a bit more like, 
Are there times or records that you're looking to break? Is there a particular piece of loot that you're like, I must have this for classic or anything you've got singled out for this time around? Uh, yeah, I want to be the first guild that clears it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Uh, and have, you know, one of the fastest times for sure. Uh, both of those um, I'm looking forward to. Okay. North? A lot of the same. I'm, I'm playing with AK and Classic. Uh, I really want to get in there as soon as possible. I'm looking forward to rushing on a mage and, you know, AOE farming and Silithus to get that rep. Hopefully be one of the first people with an equal essence, you know, be like, you know, use my class to do what I do best, you know, kill large groups of mobs. Uh, in order to, you know, help with the raid. So looking forward to, you know, pushing really, really hard um, and hopefully getting in there, you know, as soon as possible. Fingers crossed for a mage blade or toe up. All right. And Ale. I mean, if I'm playing warrior, like I might, I might try to uh, break a pally's heart and get so. <laughs> get that old. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's more useful. Sorry, what'd you say? Yeah, usually we would uh, we would give them to paladins and then uh, like not let them have bone reavers and things like that, just as kind of like a token. Even though I do agree, I think it is better used on warrior. You guys but, are red uh, bulls. Hello. No, nah. I'm sorry, S fan. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, like I, I think I think if I do play a warrior, I think I would want that just for the uh, just to have the iconicness. But I think I made up a word, but that's really selfish selfish goal, you know. Um, if I play a mage, it's definitely the, probably the trinket. Mate, I think it's okay to have selfish goals. There's nothing wrong with that. you got to look out after number one sometimes, so that's all good. Look, guys, I cannot thank you enough, each one of you, for this chat. Um, it's It's been a blast. It Again, you know, I get you guys on. I sit back and it blows my mind just when you start to get on a roll how much you know about this game. So now I'm going to give back to you a little bit. Let's get the chance to get the word out there where people can find you. Now, I'll start with you, North. Like I said at the start of this episode, um, you have been a busy boy lately. You've been streaming a lot. You started up your own Discord. Tell people about what's going on with you and where they can find you. You're on mute again, North. Oh my god! I keep going on mute. Sorry, I'm running a Z. I'm I'm, I'm in a ZG right now. Um, while, while I'm doing this, I need more mage enchants. Um, yeah, but uh, I'm streaming sort of like between YouTube and uh, and Twitch right now. It really depends on what I'm doing. Um, for uh, reasons that might be more obvious to people who follow people who don't play on uh, documented servers. Um, but yeah, if you if you check out my Twitch, Twitch.tv/NorthTheMage, all one word. Um, there's a Discord link there, uh, and and you can always find what I'm doing on Discord. You know, you can hop in and, and just chat. Same thing on YouTube. It's just North the Mage if you Google me. So, yep. And I'll throw some links in. Ale, I presume you're still uh, rocking out with Classic WoW Live. What's going on with you guys? Yeah. So right now, there's uh, not a lot going on on the on the surface, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes. We're developing some projects that we're really excited about that we'll be uh, launching with soon. TM. Uh, nothing nothing to announce at this point, but uh, we're going to have some pretty great stuff coming out. So you can yeah check us out there at Classic Wild Live. Um, when we do release it, we'll, uh, we'll have a big announcement and everything. Looking forward to it. And please hit me up, mate, whenever you need to get the word out for that one. And finally, AK, mate, thank you so much. Tell everyone what uh, what you're up to and what's going on and where people can find you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not running any uh, guilds at the moment. Just kind of taking a hiatus until classic but for as far as right now is concerned um i don't really stream or upload videos too much but maybe in classic i will so if you want to check me out on twitch twitch.tv slash ak underscore grizzly and youtube you can just youtube search uh grizzly ak and you'll find me there i have two videos uploaded 
but yeah, uh, nothing really right now. But I think you know when Classic comes out, I might stream and such. Too easy. And, and guys, I'll just say one more time. Just thank you so much. You know, you're always welcome back on the show whenever you like. No one sees sort of the irony or the ridiculousness more than me of me just getting you guys on here and sort of throwing you the football and saying, go for it. Because like I said, I haven't rated before. I had some pretty generic questions. Just get, you know, you guys going and you've all been fantastic. And, um, I can't recommend all of you enough to the listeners of the show please go and seek these guys out track them down watch their streams find out where they're putting up content they know their shit they're great people to hear from and great voices to follow so guys thanks again we'll talk to you next time thanks man i appreciate it thanks for having me on josh yeah thanks Thanks so much man always fun yeah thanks anytime This week on my other podcast, The Cinephiles, we had a countdown-style great debate over 2017's Star Wars, The Last Jedi. What I don't understand is why, in all of this, I mean, Poe led a mutiny with poor man's Maisie Williams. (laughs) And, like, in all of this, you know, they weren't just summarily executed as per military sort of dictum. Well, they'd have to have a court-martial first. That's what I mean. Instead, it was like, remember that time where you, like, mutinied? Ah, let's just forget about that. I don't know if modern military regimes conduct an execution on the spot for mutiny. During war times, they're legally allowed to. Yeah, they walk the space plank. (laughs) (laughs) If you'd like to hear more from the Cinephiles, then please do log on to Cinephiles.com. That's S-I-N-N-E-R-F-I-L-E-S. Or search for the Cinephiles on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. But now, let's get back to Countdown. All right, we've got another countdown to Classic Caller on the line. And we're speaking with, and I do want to say this appropriately, is it Fark? <laughs> Pretty close, yeah. So say the first three letters and then say the last one. Fark you. Yeah. Oh. I, I, right. Uh, I was 17 when I got on the internet in the late 90s, and it was dazed and confused. It was very popular. So if you watch that, there's a scene in there, and it's been stuck with me ever since. Absolutely. No, I love dazed and confused, believe but, me. And, Fuck is great, or you can call me Demi, which was my uh, main's name. No, I'm more than happy to stick with fuck you. That's fine. Okay, <laughs> so, there we go. <laughs> Mate, uh, you contacted me recently and you said that you wanted to talk all about mounts, which is great. I, I've been, I put the call out. I'm saying I'm looking for someone to talk about everything and anything mounts, and I'm so glad to have you answer that call. So I just wanted to start really generally and and just say – clearly mounts are something that are near and dear to your heart. What kind of drew you into either the love of the aesthetics of the mounts in Classic or maybe you turned into a bit of a collector? What is it about mounts that you love? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the thing that most attracts me to mounts is that you have this amazing, expansive game that Blizz spent so much time creating this diverse environment. You have all the specialization in terms of NPCs, gear, and weapons, and environments, and it's so wide open, and mounts get very, very little attention. Uh, and I've always looked at, at WoW as kind of having three gating elements to its process, so you have time, you have resources, and you have other players, or the social environment. And they mounts straddle all of those, but time is the essential resource for all of us. And even though there are people who are better at this game in terms of skill and there's speedrunners and there's people who would buy gold, 
everybody had to move on foot from one to 40. So for two thirds of the game, you're moving around this way. And they, um, I think it was your Bo Bell interview that really highlighted the, the richness of the outside world and that they wanted to make you explore this world. And then all of a sudden you get this game changing thing that makes you feel like you're flying. You know, even if like, uh, you have, uh, aspect of the cheetah and you're a hunter or a shaman or somebody that can move around, it still feels like you're flying when you get that first mount. And when you get that epic mount, you're just blazing by things. Um, and they made it this huge gold sink. And so it's so integral. But then when you get to flavors, there's very, very little of it there. But for those obsessives, you can spend literally months of time chasing some of these mounts never get them and then if you do it's this incredible experience whereas in retail you know now it's it's a it's a revenue source it's it's part of the aesthetic so it's interesting to me that they kind of threw that off to the side introduced some of these mounts slowly as certain patches came in and then the people who have unique mounts it's really just mind-boggling to say whoa where did you get that how do i get a hold of it that's what what really attracted me to mounts and it led to my obsessive nature where I was like, Oh, I can, I can just kill myself trying to get this one particular thing. And then I have it constantly and everybody in my raid is going to see it. Everybody in the city is going to see it. And it marks that I, I really made this one specific achievement in a way that, that gear may not or weapons may not. So that's kind of what appealed to me in the first. Well, I can already tell you that you've raised about half a dozen great points just in that opening kind of uh, statement that I want to go off on many, many tangents on. So thanks so much for obviously elaborating on your love for them. But I I want to get into the retail side of things eventually. And please don't let this call end without us exploring a little bit on how mounts are now treated in the modern game. But I I just wanted to start with a little bit of generalization about classic mounts. And as you said, that feeling of elation, I'd put it, when you finally get to 40 and you get that first mount. Now, I'm playing on a private server at the moment. A lot of people know about me. I dabble in a lot of private servers, but I don't go very far. And this is because of two reasons. Number one, I don't have the time with the show. And number two, I'm purposefully also sort of keeping myself from diving in too deep because I don't want to kind of spoil a lot of the first for classic. I want to see these things and experience them again in classic and be like, oh, fuck, I haven't felt this in 14, 15 years. That's what this zone looked like or that's what it felt like to do this, blah, blah, blah. And I've been really enjoying one particular server where I've gone a little bit further than usual and I just got my mount. And this is the first time that I have achieved a mount in, like I said, 14 or 15 years. And it is an incredible feeling. And Blizzard did an amazing job of really dangling that carrot in front of you, no pun intended, um, to give you something to strive for. And then when you get there, it is a mini mountain that you've climbed. And it's a game changer. So my question for you would be, do you remember the first time you got a mount and how you felt about it? I do. I was a gatherer, so I did herbalism and mining right from the get-go, and I had enough gold to be able to have that mount, but I came into the game maybe three or four months behind my friends. So they all had it. And I was so agitated with waiting so, so long. I was a human and it took me 
be an hour and a half to find where you bought it in the first place. So it was this huge exploration of walking. And I just gotten so accustomed to it that then you go buy this horse. And I had the, the amount for the, the training and the, the mount. And then it was just literally ride this thing around Elwyn until I can't stop go into zones I shouldn't be in because I think, well, maybe I can get past these mobs. So I went right into, um, uh, gosh, I can't even think of, of the zones, but, uh, I think I, w- I went all the way down to Angoro crater just to see if I could make it, uh, you know, dying along the way, but it was just so incredible. It was like the world opened up for me as soon as I got that mountain. Hmm. And particularly with your gathering professions, because you would you were doing what I tend to do now in that I, I like to start the game with two gathering professions. That's my money making scheme. You know, generally I go skinning and herbalism. I might try mining for classic. I don't know. I'll see how I feel. But you might be like me in that I'm the kind of player when I play with my gathering professions, I am going, you know, off piste all the time. As soon as I see yep. a node, I don't care if it's, you know, relatively far away when i'm trying to get from a to b for a quest i turn into james woods from you know in family guy which is like "Ooh, a piece <laughs> yeah. of candy Ooh, a piece of candy and i just yeah. keep going off the the beaten path because i'm i'm the same i'm horrible when i play the witcher because i literally pick up everything right. on my way from a to b to turn a five minute journey into a fucking 20 minute journey but the mount is a game changer for gatherers isn't it it's necessary. I mean, if you're, if you are a gatherer at any, you know, the Epic Mount is, is necessary. You have your routes and you know how much the time is to take them. Uh, and it, it will just separate you, which is why having that Epic Mount and that cost makes such a, uh, such sense for end game players that aren't paladins or warlocks. Mm. And one quick thing I wanted to hit on is again, just experiencing this all for the first time in a long time myself. You sort of, you look at it on a piece of paper and you go, okay, your, you know, quote unquote regular mount increases your speed by 60%. And you go, yeah. that doesn't sound like a lot. Like <laughs> what's all the, the hubbub about? You know, why do people go nuts about this thing? And then you get on this mount and you start, as you say, it feels like you're flying because it feels a lot faster than 60%. Don't you, do you feel it like does. that? It, it absolutely does. And I think it's, it's like watching a hunter with aspect of the cheetah take off from you and you see how fast they're moving versus the way that you're moving. Mm. Um, and then getting on that mount, it, you don't have that sense because everybody's now at that same speed. So it, it is, it is like light years because you have this, you know, five minute walk from one quest point to the next quest point and you're bored and then you grind. And now I've got 20 minutes to walk back to the turn in. Whereas the Mount is I can get from place to place. The world has been opened up to me in a way whereas before it was just prohibited. So I, I agree with you hundred percent. Mm. And then obviously don't even get us started on the hundred percent speed increase that you get with your Epic Mount. Oh yeah. And, and, and it's small. But when you get those trinkets and the extra speed increase on the Epic Mount too, and you can go slightly over, you just feel like you're blazing because you've spent so much time at, at traversing the world at one speed. It, it, it's, it's one of the best feelings. Well, let's have a very quick chat about those little trinkets and the ways in which you can sort of spur your mount on just that little bit faster. Now, obviously, yeah. I'm, I you know, half alluded to earlier, the carrot on the stick. Um, you know, I yep, believe there's also the spurs as well. Why don't you talk yep. to people about what they can do to go just that little bit faster? Yeah, it's trinkets. So it's mount speed. And basically, you 
can get up to 6%. Uh, you've got the carrots, you've got the spurs, the riding crop. Um, those are, are things that uh, essentially just increase it a little bit. And there are people that will, um, allow, or sorry, the riding crop is, is burning crusade. So it's the spurs and the carrot. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get to the point uh, if you play all track Valley. So you're grinding for that mount. Uh, just to have it as an aesthetic and you already got your epic, you will automatically put on those trinkets as a macro and then take them off when you get to your destination because it's just that that little difference over a large map makes uh, makes it feel so much quicker. So it is it is absolutely worth trying to find those if you were spending a lot of time going from place to place or you're doing a grind like AV or you are regularly raiding somewhere that is so far away and you don't have warlocks. If you just want to get that little bit of extra edge, those two can make quite a bit of a difference. Mm, thank you for reminding me to set up that macro as soon as I can. I'd forgotten about yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, just on obviously talking about how mounts work and all that jazz, everyone knows that, but it's fun to sort of, you know, talk about the game changes that they are. But if we move now into, you know, the collection of mounts and sort of people always like to talk yeah. about what's their favorite. Oh, this one looks so much cooler than that one. And, you know, I was a, I was a nine elf my whole vanilla career. I'd never ever dabbled or was interested at all in any other mount other than the one that was assigned to my race. And mm. I was, I mean, I, I did well because I think by default, the night elves have the coolest mounts in the game. The sabers are amazing. Um, so it never troubled me. But did you get involved much in starting to collect other mounts? I did all that I could within my framework. So, you know, you've got kind of like 10 uh, special mounts that I'd say. You, you can do the other races with a relative grind. You can buy them pretty cheaply. Uh, you'll be able to buy them in classic, but you have to spend a ton of time getting your reputation to exalted to ride them. So you can get four others. And I did that because I was just obsessive enough. Mm. Um, and I wasn't a pally or a lock. I never rolled. So I didn't do those quests. And those are, those are uh, neat aesthetics to follow. Um, I never got to PVP rank 11. So I didn't have my battle or ram or, or battle strider, but I did the AV ones. Those are, uh, even in, in classic it'll take you a weekend maybe two and you'll get your battle charger if you're alliance or your howler if you're horde um the one that i did that i was most proud of which is just a pain in the ass i was i was alliance and i was a a human priest and it's that winter saber frost saber winter spring um and the horde doesn't have an equivalent of that and that's just a reputation grind in winter spring and it's just questing so it's mob kill turn in mob kill turn in and it is mind numbing but i wanted that more than i wanted the black cat that i could get from getting uh darnassus rep up so that was the one that i was most proud of but i didn't chase the um the three drops for instances um i didn't have the uh ultra rare that you can't get in classic where the the unarmored level 60 mount you are you uh, I'm not familiar. The unarmored one. Yeah. So if you were in the beginning now before, oh, patch one four, um, you could buy a mount, and it was just a. It looked similar to your regular mount. It was level sixty. Then they added a new aesthetic for it, 
mm-hmm. and the old mount went away. You couldn't buy it anymore. But if you still had it in your inventory, then it was incredibly unique. So there are still people in retail that are running around with a, a level 60 riding mount that doesn't have the same armor and aesthetic as everybody else's. And it just won't be in classic because there won't be a, a patch 1.4 or 1.2. 1.1 to 1.3. So uh, I wasn't in the game early enough to do that. And I didn't chase um, God, Baron Rivendare's mount or the, the Raptor or the Tiger and ZG. I saw the Tiger and the Raptor drop, but I did not get them. And I didn't uh, run ZG solely to get those mounts. Oh, okay. Now, obviously there's outside of the racial mounts that we can obtain and you know you can collect others outside of your race, like we said, within your own faction. But there's a few other mounts in the game that are particularly uh, put on a pedestal by the player base, and these are the yeah. extraordinarily rare mounts. Now, again, yeah. I, I really want to preface this with everyone because uh, whether you can hear it in my voice, whatever, like I, I love talking about this, but I don't get overly excited about it, which is why I'm so glad to have you here because the collection of mounts is something that really couldn't interest me personally less. I love my one assigned mount. It gets me from A to B. It's like it's like having an old, uh, you know, Datsun or something. Like, yes. check, check out my 1976 Ford or whatever. Like, it fucking yep. gets me from A to B, and I don't care yeah, what it looks yeah. like. But yeah. I completely appreciate that a lot of people out there want Ferraris. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. we, we talk about things like, um, you know, the, the, the Baron's Mount. We talk about things like the uh, the Swift uh, Zulian Tiger, is it? Um, mm-hmm. Why don't you talk to us about those? Um, okay, so you, you basically have three drop mounts. The, the, the rare mounts, as I would say, uh, I'd probably put them into the, the maybe five are really rare mounts. You, you, if you're a pally or lock, you have those. If you do AV enough, you will get your, your battle charger or howler. If you get to rank 11 in PvP, which takes some work, you will get your war tiger, war ram, war strider. Um, the winter spring one is alliance only and it, it is a pain in the butt. So that just says I had a lot of individual time and I was willing to kill again and again. So we talked about those. Um, then you get the, the, the raptor and tiger, which both drop in CG from bosses, but the, the drop rate is depending on your sources somewhere between a half a percent and a percent chance. So you kill this boss a hundred times. It drops once. Now you divide by 20, the odds of you getting it. Mm. So good luck, mm. which is more of a, I, I, I rated ZG and got lucky, but it's, they're so different because the tiger can be something that the horde can ride mm. and they can't ride a tiger otherwise. And the raptor, some lions can ride. If you get those, it's going to, you're going to notice it right away. So I think part of it is this social showing off aspect. Um, then there's, the actually what probably would be easier than Baron's Mount is the Karaji battle. So if you are in a raid alliance and you plan yourself well enough, you get that scepter to ring the ring the gong and and you are the scaring lord, right? Mm. That usually in the old days it was pretty much one per server because no one knew what the heck was going on and whoever reached it first did it. So this the thing is people think well, you ring the that's it. You get one Karaji battle tank, which is this, uh, you know, um, crystalline like insect sort of thing. Have you ever been in AQ before? No, I haven't. Well, I, sorry, okay, I, so- I have in retail, like to go and see what it was like, but not in the vanilla version of the game. 
Okay, but you know how AQ is so huge. When you come in there, you get that little mount that you can use only yep. in the instance. Yep. So the Karachi Battle Tank is that, but it's outside of the instance. And it was the only legendary mount in the game because you had to go through this insane chain to ring the gong. But if you did it within 10 hours of the first person ringing the gong, you would get the mount as well, even though you wouldn't get ultimately the Scarab Lord title. Mm-hmm. So that is a pretty damn rare mount. And that for most people on most servers says I was a raid leader or guild leader of the top guild on the server. So that that is really kind of a rank of honors what tended to be. But on private servers or people were doing transfers to servers, so they'd have the they'd go through the whole chain, they'd get the the scepter, they'd ring the gong, they'd just rush right there to get it. That that's what it became. Uh, later on as you went through various expansions. Uh, but for classic, it's going to be a handful of people that are organized and are racing. And it wouldn't shock me if there were one or two people only per server that were prepped enough to get, but somebody's going to get it. So it's rare. Baron's mount is like a one in 5,000 chance of dropping. Like that's what the, the, the data mining seems to say about it. So you go run the instance again and again and again, and it does drop. And now you divide your chances by five because everyone's going to roll on it. Yeah. So it's, it's almost so rare that it will exist because there's going to be enough people running it, but the odds of you getting it are next to nothing. So I think those two, the, the Raptor, the Tiger, Vendere's Mount really show, I, I've, I've gotten lucky in some way, uh, but the battle tank the is I am I am high 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 above the server, and the charger and the howler, eleven mounts say I put in my time doing these things. That's really the limit, and that's kind of what surprised me, and I think why mounts aren't such a huge thing of discussion, because then in retail, even in Burning Crusade, it became well everybody can do this pursuit for lots of different mounts, and now they sell them. So you can have a flying pig if you want, and you have $25 to spend. We'll definitely touch on that. I guess just one last thing I wanted to point out is the, the even though a lot of people do it, and it's I totally hear where you're coming from, but when we talk about the Baron's Mount, we talk about the Swift Zulian Tiger and, and the Raptor and things like that. As you said, you said, oh, just, you know, if you go into ZG a hundred times, the thought is that you'll get one, but it's the great prob- uh, probability fallacy that kind of creeps in there because it's, it's not quite how it works. It's just every time you go in, you'll have that one in a hundred chance. It's not the, if I go a hundred times, I am guaranteed to get it once. And that's kind of what keeps players coming back and coming back for more they think that that's the probability and it's just a little little bit different but it it is so rare and i completely appreciate where you're coming from with that but um i am always startled by how many people run these instances so many times just for these mounts and you know i've talked to people in the discord um you know who have you know run things 150 times just for a sniff of this mount and I, yeah. I, I am not cut from that cloth I have nothing but um, you know a, a sort of morbid respect for those people who are prepared to go that far to try and get this desired cosmetic item because yes. it will make them enjoy the game more and I completely appreciate that that's that's the thing I mean you know for some of these people uh, you know and I think with ZG in particular the 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 Alliance, they want the Raptor and the, the Horde, they want the Tiger because you will be immediately noticed 
Uh, you have a Karaji battle tank, you have a Zulian Tiger in org, everybody's going to ask you where you got this. Um, you have a Winter Spring Frost Saber as an Alliance human, people really aren't going to notice it that much. You have Baron Rivendare's mount, some people are really going to notice it, but I think that's why people rerun CG so, so much, is because you have that ability to have something that was originally in the game, but was was knocked, patched out pretty quickly of of getting a mount from the other faction. Hmm. It's kind of funny in that it's the opposite of how it is in real life because we talk about it as a little bit of a, sorry to be crude, but a little bit of a dick measuring contest in terms of yeah, I can yeah. I can park my mount in the middle of a storm wind and people go like, ooh, ah, can I see it? You know, whereas yes. in real life, if I park, park a Ferrari outside of a restaurant or whatever, it's me flexing my wallet, so to speak. It is. Whereas it is. in the game, it didn't, it didn't come down to skill or any particular talent that you had over someone else. It came down to luck. So it's an interesting sort of a difference between the two. Well, it's it's luck and it's access to resources because yeah. you're not going to be doing these things to that level unless you have that social community. So that gated some of these mounts from people. But I have to agree with you. It is kind of a you know pruning contest and saying look look at how great I am. Uh, I guess the difference is if you park your Ferrari in front of a, a place and somebody is struggling to make ends meet and eat that sense, different sentiment than, wow, you were willing to spend 20 hours of your day every day for this long, just mm-hmm. to hope to get this particular thing. Or wow, you could be lucky and just have gotten into a raid and had this drop and, Oh, aren't you so special? It's that range of options. But the thing I like about them is that they're so noticeable when you have them and people who have some special mounts, it's shown that they have some dedication and willingness to go into other areas of the game that might not be valued as much by others. Mind you, I'd be just as upset with the Raptor as the Ferrari because if I park my fu- <laughs> if I park my fucking Raptor out the front of the Stormwind Bank and some prick keys that bastard, I'll be very yeah, upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I hear you. <laughs> now, look, we teased it. Let's talk a little bit about where Blizzard has taken mounts with where they are in retail, and and I won't yeah. sort of you know go too long on this topic, but you know. As I mentioned earlier, I don't give a shit about cosmetics. Give me one mount, you know, and, and the, the knock against, and I've heard, um, you know, uh, Def Camp and Melderon talk about this recently, more specifically Melderon. He mentioned on a video or a podcast recently, I can't remember which one, um, that, you know, it, it does, and it, you hear it in several places where people talk about, oh, it breaks immersion in this fantasy world when you can reach into your little bottomless bag and pull out 300 mounts that you have. And I appreciate where people yes. are coming from when they say that. Personally, my, the, the the break for me is more that it's odd to have such variety in a way in that, I don't know, I know it's a fantasy world versus a real world, so people don't, you know, write me angry tweets about this, but, you know, in the real world, every fucking horse pretty much looks the same. Camels all yes. look the fucking same. So I'm yeah. fine with mounts looking the same in a fantasy world. Now, I know it's a fantasy world and there's all these, you know, uh, fantastic world of uh, beasts and whatnot and... um it just doesn't really appeal to me that much. And so when people say it breaks their immersion, I agree with that. I think it's gotten a bit out of hand with the, the amount of choice that you have with mounts in retail. But also my biggest problem with what's happened with mounts in retail is how the the majority of – well, not the majority. That's probably unfair to say. But a, a lot of retail players 
seem to have become caught up in the pastime of got to catch them all. And I just don't get it how the game kind of became, the subplot became Mount Collection. Well, I think your your previous uh, call, and I apologize, I'll be a little bit brief on this because I have to head out shortly, but your your previous call uh, podcast with the Blizzard business really talked about where game money is, and it's in cosmetics. Oh, and yeah. that's, that's essentially where the industry is. So I understand why they're adapting it that way. Um, and it's similar to other things like Pokemon Go or uh, premium games where it's people who have... I don't know, addictive personalities or, or difficult, you know, impulse control problems. And they're, they're saying, I, I'm, I'm going to do this particular service. But the, the real nefarious part to me is that for a lot of these mounts, you can either pour money into it or it's a particular set of circumstances that you have to go through that not everybody has the skill or time or access to the resources. And so people are selling mounts that you can get from specific actions so i haven't played retail in quite some time so i'm not as immersed in it, but the the notion that you can say to somebody take over my character and go do this thing this this long chain and i'll pay you twenty dollars and now i get this mount that's where i think the gotta catch them all starts getting really harmful and nefarious to the community because honestly you, you do your world of immersion and everything is bright and shiny and it looks like vegas and that's kind of what turned me off to retail uh, after Lich King anyway, is that it's just too much. But it, it, I think it really gets bad when you are starting to have the in and out of the economy be driven by something that is cosmetic. And it's such a contrast to what we got in vanilla and how these things were so unbelievably special. Um, and I'll end it by saying, I'm with you. I don't want to spend any time or money on mounts going through because it, it took me weeks of time to get this one white cat. And then I was thinking, well, how is this really making me connect with people? And it wasn't, hmm. um, it was the, you know, the raids and the, the activities that I was trying to do with people, the cooperative stuff that really appealed to me, but I still love the notion that this thing that is, was so integral had proliferate or very limited proliferation or special uh, specialization. And now it's, it's it's almost meaningless. It's like walking into a jelly bean factory. You're 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 going to have a jelly bean. Why do you need four thousand of them? Yeah, and, and as you say, you know the reason the twenty five dollar flying pig mount exists is because people buy it, and and exactly fine, each to their own. But um, you know, it, it's I guess. We should just wind up with this as much as I sort of disagree with going down with the avenues that they're going down in terms of purchase, store purchased mounts and all that jazz. Um, you know, the player base, you know, a proportion of them does buy it. They do support it. So, you know, one of the great points, and I know you've got to go soon. Sorry, Matt. I won't tie you up much longer. Just one great point that I read on a forum just in the last two days about the flying pig mount that it, this sounds really <laughs> super, super tinfoil hat tea in, yeah. in regard, but, um, they said that, look, and I never pay attention to these kinds of comments, but this one did grab me where they say, Blizzard is basically flooding the market with these flying mounts now, or at least doing it much more often, because they've got the stats, they've got the analytics, they know that WoW is somewhat on the downhill slide now. As we've said, no king can rule forever. This game has to end at some point. If you are now in what you would call, you know, the the, the death crawl of WoW, you know, the last couple of years of WoW or what have you, 
then they're absolutely going to start leaning heavily on the cash shop and milking this bad yeah. boy for all that it is worth because there's almost zero uh, blowback for them. If they piss people off who don't want to buy it, so be it. We'll see you later. But a lot of people will buy it, and then eventually they'll buy it for a game that's going away anyway. I think that is a great, not even conspiracy theory, just a great sort of analysis on what might be happening. It is. And you know, people who are playing retail know what they get right now, and the ones who want keep playing it. The ones who want to experience the new content, experience it quickly and then uh, log off. And I think that's part of why I've been so entranced by your podcast and just the notion of classic is not only the memory, but the idea that we can recreate this world where that is not the case. And you're, you're going to spend your time achieving rather than uh, um, kind of adopting yourself and being part of their money machine. I'm I'm super excited about it. I agree with you 100. percent But they, yeah, they do need to get whatever money they can out of this 15 year old friend. For sure. Now, look, as you're you've got one foot out the door, mate. And look, we might even yeah. have to do a part two at some point. But real quick, just before you go, spit it out. Rank your mounts. What's your favorite? What's your least favorite? How do you like them? Uh, uh favorite that I ever had was Raptor. Um, that or ever saw because it was I was Alliance and I couldn't do it. Um, because I spent so much time on the winter spring frost saber, that was really up there. I pursued barons for a while and realized, no, that's not going to work. That was definitely high. I like the warlock epic mount and I never held a warlock to 60, but I think I may do it in classic just to get that particular mount because there's something about the horse and the dread steed and the way that it flows. It just looks really, really awesome. So I'd say, uh, Raptor, Karaji battle tank, uh, frost saber baron, and then warlock if you had to go top three racial mounts what do you do top three racial um the mechanic strider so different and it was not uh, uh it was not organic so i liked that uh i did like the troll raptor because i i just was alliance and, and that was really appealing to me and then i gotta go with you that the nelf saber was was one of the coolest in the games yeah. so i really really liked. made me sad when i had all my humans because i knew the path and had already leveled one one that that i didn't go night elf just yeah and we can all agree that horses are cool in real life but pretty boring in game oh yeah so <laughs> so so <boring. laughs> all right mate look thank you so much for taking time out for this call i know you've got to run look i have other questions we might have to do a part two sometime so we'll stay in touch sure. thank you so much yeah. fuck you you've been great absolutely you're very welcome josh thanks see you Bye-bye. mate Hi everyone, Josh here. I just want to take a quick moment to remind you that while Countdown to Classic will always be a podcast you can get for free, if you do happen to really enjoy the show and find yourself always coming back for more, then please do check out the show's Patreon page to see how you can help keep the lights on at Countdown to Classic and even vote on show content as the show continues to bring you more and more Classic Wow goodness. Alternatively, if monthly subscriptions aren't your thing, you can always visit the show's tip jar over at Ko-Fi, with that link being in the show notes and on the website too. Now, let's get back to the show. And with those calls all done, as voted for by the Countdown to Classic patrons, it's time for That's Law Like It.
In That's Law Like It, we hear about a piece of law from Vanilla World of Warcraft, as read from the always amazing Wowpedia.com. And this week, the Countdown to Classic patrons have voted on Moradon. So let's get straight into it. And again, I have to shout out listener Zanzibar for his assistance with putting this all together. Moradon is a five-player dungeon that consists of three wings, the Wicked Grotto, Foulspore Cavern, and Earthsong Falls, also known as Purple Crystals, Orange Crystals, and Pristine Waters, respectively. The instance is located in the westernmost portion of Desolus. Now, I know a lot of you say Desolace, and I used to as well, but it just feels more comfortable saying Desolus, so I'm going to go with that. In the Valley of Spears in Desolus. It's a combination of ancient centre or burial grounds, as well as a primal temple dedicated to the elemental earth. Added in patch 1.2, Moradon was the first dungeon to be added after the release of World of Warcraft. The old World of Warcraft World Dungeon site describes Moradon as follows. Protected by the fierce Moradine Centaur, Moradon is one of the most sacred sites within Desolus. The Great Temple or Cavern is the burial place of Zatar, one of two immortal sons born to the demigod Cenarius, or maybe not so immortal if he's dead, but legend holds that Zatar and the earth elemental princess Theradras sired the misbegotten Centaur race. It is said that upon their emergence, the barbaric centaur turned on their father and killed him. Some believe that Theradras, in her grief, trapped Zatar's spirit within the winding cavern and used its energies for some malign purpose. The subterranean tunnels are populated by the vicious, long-dead ghosts of the centaur Khans, as well as Theradras's own raging elemental minions. While what we know about Moradon is somewhat limited, we do know that it is a holy place to the centaur. It is the tomb of Zatar, keeper of the grove and son of Cenarius, and the house of Princess Theradras, an earth elemental. Zatar rejected his keeper heritage when he joined with the princess of the chaotic earth elementals, Theradras. Their unholy union gave birth to the misshapen and cursed centaur, who promptly slew their father for his part in their wretched creation. Fearful of Cenarius's wrath, the grief-stricken Theradras sequestered her dead lover's body in her secret sanctuary, the Crystal Caverns of Teramok, where she watches over him to this day. Travellers who come to Desolus have little trouble spotting Zatar's tomb, for the blessing of nature that permeates his being transformed his resting place into a verdant paradise of flora and tranquil pools. Today, this tomb is now trodden by the hooves of Zatar's children, who have claimed this great cavern as their sacred stronghold, Moradon. As we've now learned, Moradon is a sacred place to the centaur, who you might remember from Warcraft 3 as a murderous race that overruns much of Kalimdor. Of the two parents of the centaur race, only one remains alive, Princess Theradras. So who is Theradras, and how did she come to reside in Moradon? As mentioned, Theradras is an earth elemental, elemental creatures made of the rock and energy of the earth itself. Their domain on the elemental plane is known as Deepholm, and the leader of the earth elementals is Therazane. The Stone Lords rule Deepholm under Therazane. Each of their personalities seems to embody a different aspect of Earth. Not all Earth Elementals are minions of the Elemental Lords and Princes. Some are minions of the Elemental Spirits of Outland. 
As heard recently on the show when we discussed the old gods, in order to keep Azeroth safe from the threats that were the old gods and the elemental lords, the Titans imprisoned the old gods underground and banished the savage elementals to the Titan-constructed Elemental Plane, a secure dominion where the elementals could dwell without harming Azeroth. Four domains were created within this primordial realm to serve as ideal environments for each type of elemental. One of the elemental plane's domains, a rough domain known as Deepholm, is home to the earth elementals. With the elementals' departure, nature calmed and the world settled into a peaceful harmony. Deepholm serves as both home and prison for the earth elementals, ruled by Therizane the Stone Mother. A variety of stone and crystalline creatures live within Deepholm, including familiars such as stone drakes, shale spiders, and gyre worms, composed entirely of stone and minerals. Deathwing had been to Deepholm several times, and the forces of Therizane knew him. After the Burning Legion was defeated in the War of the Ancients, Holn High Mountain, a spokesman for the Tauren, focused on the monster that got away, the then newly christened Deathwing. He confronted the destroyer at Neltharion's vault, and with the aid of Igrul the Scalebane, retrieved the Hammer of Kazgaroth from within. Holm decided that while it was not powerful enough to kill Deathwing, the artifact could at least be used to banish the dragon. Holm and an uprising of Deathwing's Drogbar slaves battled the Earthwater, and Holm banished Deathwing from the land, sending him to Deepholm. Upon this banishment, Deepholm was where Deathwing would remain until he was nursed back to health after the events of the novel Day of the Dragon. In the middle of Deepholm lies the Temple of Earth, which also holds the Stone Core. Inside the temple is a stone called the World Pillar. It bore the weight of all elemental and magnetic forces in Deepholm. So, Therizane the Stone Mother, the elemental lord of Earth, and formerly one of the old gods' lieutenants, became a resident of this place, Deepholm. Now, this next little bit about Therizane is from the Warcraft RPG, and is considered non-canon, but I feel like it still works pretty well. So, it describes Therizane as a monstrous humanoid covered with stones, earth, and clinging plants. She's got squat legs and four powerful arms. Her unblinking eyes of gold-flecked agate look out into the world from her one head, but there are two other faces to be seen as well. Therizane the Stone Mother is ruler over the earth, dirt, rock, and mountains. She's revered by all earth elementals and creatures that dwell underneath the ground. Some druids of the wild see her as the embodiment of all that is peaceful and calm about the world. Some sages believe she feels pain whenever the ground is sundered and weeps at any destruction wrought upon the land. Therizane is the most powerful of the elemental lords. She's a patient, loving, motherly type who encourages growing things and loves simply to spend long periods of time relaxing with those creatures that make their homes upon her. She often feels as though she's always at war with the other elemental lords. Al-Akir erodes her surface with winds, Neptulon beats his waves constantly upon her shores, and Ragnaros is a blazing furnace that churns at her fiery core. She would be perfectly happy if the three of them would just go away. Therizane is slow to anger and attempts to avoid combat whenever possible. If roused to battle, however, she can be a fearsome, powerful opponent. She typically drives towards the most dangerous foe, smashing her target into tiny red pieces before moving on to the next. Should she be seriously challenged, she simply sinks into the earth and retreats. 
And that's it for the RPG information for now. But while the Stone Mother and the rest of her kind were imprisoned in the elemental plane by the Titan Forged, Theradras, the only daughter of Therazane, evaded capture and hid below the earth, eventually falling into a long slumber. Many millennia later, 1100 years before the opening of the Dark Portal, the Tauren wandered Kalimdor's forests and plains, living in harmony with nature. One region in particular was especially sacred, the verdant grassland of Mashanshi, or Loom of the Earth Mother. Drawn by faint elemental whisperings, the Tauren became convinced that somewhere beneath the meadows, the Earth Mother herself dwelled. After decades of attempting to rouse her from her slumber, the Tauren shaman eventually succeeded, but to their horror, they realized that what they had awakened was not the benevolent Earth Mother. Instead, the enormous earth elemental Princess Theradras, daughter of Therazane the Stone Mother, arose. The newly awakened Theradras reached out to the verdant surroundings for sustenance and consumed their energies in order to regenerate her weakened form. The Tauren would later name this now barren land Desolus. The sudden monumental loss of life sent ripples throughout all of Azeroth and even the Emerald Dream. Zatar travelled to Desolus to investigate. Zatar was the son of Cenarius and brother of Remulos. Cenarius, the lord of the forest and patron of many druids, is one of the most powerful and influential demigods of Azeroth. Where his brother Remulos was strong and beautiful, Zatar was very cunning and slight of build. While the brothers were respected equally, Zatar always felt as if he could never compare to the glory and attention he thought Remulos had. When Remulos's children, Celebras and his dryad sisters, were born, a jealous Zatar set out to outdo his brother, and chose to start at the now-ruined Desolus. When Zatar arrived in Desolus, he discovered the source of the corruption was Theradras herself. Though he had decided to imprison Theradras before he left the Emerald Dream, he instead fell in love with her. Theradras requited Zatar's affection, and the two became mates. From this forbidden and unnatural union, the Centaur were born, a half-humanoid, half-horse, warlike tribal race. Shortly after their creation, the Centaur brutally murdered their father, and the half-horse creatures quickly proliferated and spread out across Kalimdor, driving the Tauren of Desolus from their homes and igniting a long and dark period of war that would come to last for many centuries. They are now abound in central and southern Kalimdor, primarily in Desolus and the Barrens, where they engage in constant war against other Centaur and Tauren tribes. The Centaur are savagery and brutality incarnate. There are five known tribes of Centaur from Kalimdor, all descended from Zatar and Theradras, and are therefore related to the Keepers of the Grove and the Dryads, through their Cenarian lineage, and the element of Earth. The five tribes are the Kolkar, Magram, Moradin, Gelkus, and Galak. The Moradin clan, as you might have guessed, are the predominant inhabitants of Moradon and the primary guards of Zatar's tomb. There is a Tauren myth, Hatred of the Centaur, which tells how the early Tauren were driven from their ancestral lands in Molgor and forced to wander the barrens of Kalimdor. The Tauren claim that the Centaurs have always existed to scourge the land. The barbaric Centaur overhunted giraffes for decades, but it was the Tauren who saved the species from extinction. 
When the orcs first arrived in Kalimdor, they found the nomadic Tauren under constant attack from the centaurs. Through the aid of the orcs, the Tauren were finally able to reclaim their ancestral lands and live in peace once more. The conflict between the Horde and the Centaurs continues, however, particularly in the Barrens. The members of the Horde hate them so intensely that they've taken to skinning their corpses and making rugs out of them. Such decorations are a common sight in cities such as Orgrimmar and Thunderbluff. Today, the Horde and the Alliance are both attempting to control the Savage Centaurs by encouraging inter-tribal conflicts so as to prevent the Centaur from banding together and becoming a dangerous force. Despite the hostility each centaur clan has traditionally had for the others, recently, a centaur known as the Centaur Pariah, labelled as a heretic by his people, developed plans to unify the clans. In Vanilla World of Warcraft, players can aid him in his design by accepting his quest, the Pariah's Instructions, and entering the Holy Tomb of Moradon to forge the Amulet of Union, which he intends to use to bring his warring people together as one. Whether or not the centaurs would actually be able to consolidate into a unified, civilized people remains unknown. If redeemed, Zaytar's spirit also spoke of hope for a more positive future for his offspring. Theradras loved the centaur, and she was worried that the Horde's rise to power might eventually drive them to extinction. After years of hostilities with the orcs and their allies, she acted to save her progeny. She infused the centaur with her power, driving them to make war and claim new territories outside of Desolus. The centaur warbands stormed out of Desolus and laid waste to the surrounding regions. Horde forces sent by Thrall quickly discovered that the centaur was slaughtering their other tribes, just as much as they were attacking outsiders. When they investigated further, they met Warug, who told them of the origins of the centaur and Theradras's recent actions. Warug is a leader of the Magram centaur, and acted as the spokesman for the clan in dealing with Horde or Alliance aid against their enemy clans. Players united with Warug and his Magram clan, who held no loyalty to Theradras, unlike the other clans, to suppress the other tribes. They then entered Moradon and slew Theradras. Their victory halted the spreading corruption in Desolus and stopped the violent bloodlust in the Centaur. With the Horde's blessing, the Magram became the leaders of the United Centaur and led them to an age of tranquility, yet none knew how long they would stay on the path of peace. Today, the tomb of Zatar is a maze of underground caves and tunnels, populated by the spirits of the long-dead centaur Khans, Khans being the leaders and rulers of the tribes. Earth elementals, basilisks, and rock borers also inhabit the site. It's rumoured that satyrs and other emissaries of the Burning Legion have moved into these caverns as well. Although each of the five centaur tribes maintained its stronghold elsewhere in Desolus, this was once the region's capital, shortly after the Battle of Mount Hyjal, when there were no other cultures of any note in all of Desolus. At that time, the centaur had run all others down in their unceasing lust for conquest. However, now that Desolus has no affiliation and members of other civilizations have moved back in, it's only one of several major settlements. Desolus no longer has a capital. Moradon has a vast gathering of palatial tents surrounded by a palisade, the Valley of Spears, which once served as a cultural centre and meeting place for all centaur. However, in recent times, many of the centaur tribes are at war and now it's inhabited only by the Moradine clan. 
They are the protectors of Moradon, and only the bravest and mightiest of the tribe's warriors are chosen to guard the tomb of Zatar. Behind a series of spiked barriers in the center of this mesa stands Teramok, an ancient titan vault rumored to hold Theradras. Some even claim that Theradras guards the tomb of her husband, the keeper of the grove killed by the first Khans. In the quest Corruption of Earth and Seed, given either to Alliance by Keeper Marindus in Nigel's Point or to Horde by Selendra near Shadowprey Village, Players are asked to slay Princess Theradras on behalf of the Scenarian Circle and return to the quest giver for a reward. So, that's pretty much the law in relation to Moradon. The place isn't teeming with overly deep stories, but it's an interesting tale nonetheless as we get to know Princess and the gang a little bit better. Now, let's hear a bit more about what and who we'll find inside. So, as mentioned earlier, there's three wings. There's the Purple Crystals, which is a smaller wing containing one boss, Tongue. There are groups of non-elite imps that patrol, so AoE capability can be handy here. Some satyrs use Gouge, incapacitating the tank and causing all the monsters to attack the next person on the threat list. Warriors can use Berserking Rage judiciously to mitigate this. Tongue himself comes with stealth guards and randomly teleports around when you start fighting him. Then we've got the Orange Crystals, and this wing's denizens are composed of slimes, plants, and dryads mostly. Things to watch out for are some of the plant's knockback abilities and the oozes, which must be kited and killed by ranged DPS. These oozes have an aura which does a large amount of damage every three seconds. Bosses consist of Razorlash and Noxian. Then we've got the pristine waters, the elemental shrine consisting of many giants. Now, what kind of mobs will we encounter in Moradon on the whole? Well, we've got basilisks, bog beasts, centaurs, dimetrodons, dryads, earth elementals, ghosts, grells, hydras, lashes, keepers, mountain giants, oozes, satyrs, treants, turtles, and worms. But let's go through the bosses that we'll find as well. Now, you heard me mention Lord Viletongue. He's the head of the Putridus clan of Satyrs. He has corrupted parts of Moradon, stunting the growth of many of the plants inside. He also created the elemental Noxian and Razorlash. Putridus Satyrs roamed the caverns of Moradon. The Sadia Lord Viletung journeyed into Moradon's depths after hearing of its corruption. Theradras was wary of the conniving demon at first, but Viletung proved his worth by creating an array of wretched minions, such as Noxian and Razorlash for the princess. He drops the infernal trickster leggings, which is some male leggings, which might be handy for shamans, hunters, or leveling paladins. The Satyr's Lash, a dagger that can proc a shadow bolt, and the Satyr Main Sash, a caster's belt, perhaps a fraction more desired by warlocks. Next, we've got Tinkerer Gizlock. This is a goblin mini boss that can be found in the Wicked Grotto wing of Moradon. Tinkerer Gizlock and five other gem hunters snuck into Moradon to mine its highly prized crystals. Their plan went horribly wrong when Satyr slaughtered everyone in the party save for Gizlock. The goblin, trapped within the caves and driven to the brink of madness, sees himself as the subterranean region's new ruler. He drops Gizlock's Hypertech Buckler, a handy shield for paladins and shaman, the inventor's focal sword, a caster's sword, and the megashot rifle, a nice little ranged piece for hunters. 
Next, we've got Celebras, who is the son of Remulos and is a keeper of the grove, like his father. After Celebras's uncle, Zaytir, was killed by his centaur offspring, Zaytar's spirit was held prisoner by his mate, Theradras. In an attempt to free his uncle's spirit, Celebras and his dryad sisters entered Moradon. However, the corruption that had spread through the caverns soon overcame them. Celebras the Cursed now wanders blindly inside, cursed by corruption. Once he's killed by the adventurers of the Alliance and the Horde, he is redeemed and appears as Celebras the Redeemed. Upon learning of his uncle's tragic fate, the noble Celebras swore to free Zatar's spirit, yet the Keeper of the Grove was not prepared for the horrors that awaited him in Moradon's shadowy corridors. The dark energies permeating the area quickly overcame Celebras, filling his heart with uncontrollable rage. Now Celebras drops the Claw of Celebras, a fist weapon that procs poison, Grove Keeper's Drape, which is fine for tanks with plus 12 stamina and a little nature resist to boot, and the Soothsayer's Headdress, which does despite being leather, may still have shamans and paladins falling over themselves to get it, with its plus 25 intellect, plus 8 spirit, and plus 7 stamina. Very nice. Next we've got Meshlock the Harvester, a rare mob bog beast found in Moradon. He is found at the end of the purple section, near where it converges with the orange section at the Poison Falls. If you're lucky enough to spot him, then he drops the Bloom Sprout headpiece with plus 18 stamina, plus 10 nature resist, and plus 36 attack power and Fungus Shroud Armor, which with its 25 agility and 10 stamina had me as a rogue saying for the first time ever, show me the fungus. Next, we've got Noxian, a living symbol of the corruption of Moradon, created by Lord Viletung. Noxian is a living embodiment of corruption. Theradras ordered her ally Lord Viletung to create this putrid elemental to be a powerful servant and a loyal pet to ease the princess's loneliness. Noxian spreads its toxic essence into areas of Moradon that have not yet withered under Theradras's malign influence. He drops the Heart of Noxian, a trinket which removes a poison effect, Noxian Shackles, which aren't terribly interesting unless you're after that nature resist for later, the Noxious Shooter, a handy little wand, and that's about it. Next, we've got Razor Lash, a Lasher boss located in Moradon. Razor Lash was made to accompany Noxian through Moradon. In time, this new creation became one of the princess's most cherished servants. Razor Lash constantly wanders the caves alongside Noxian, using thorny tendrils to shred any untainted plant life it can find. Razor Lash drops, Brussel hide leggings, some leather pants stacked with intellect and stamina, Chloromesh girdle, again, not much to look at unless you're after that nature resist for later on, the fighter skin spalders, leather shoulders for rogues, feral druids, and hunters, and the vine rot sandals, some nice little caster thongs as we call them in Australia, or flip flops for the rest of you. Next, we've got Landslide, who's a mountain giant boss. Now, for years, the ancient mountain giant known as Landslide cultivated brilliant crystal gardens in Moradon, but Theradras enthralled the behemoth when she took up residence there. This once stoic giant now lives only to serve his tyrannical new master. He drops Cloudstone, great offhand casterpiece with 10 intellect, spirit, and arcane resist. Fist of Stone, a one-handed mace with a chance to restore 50 mana on hit. Helm of the Mountain, again, all about that nature resist, and Rock Grip Gauntlets. Shamans, hunters, and maybe pallies will be eyeing these off. Next, we've got Rot Grip. Deep in the depths of Moradon lurks a great white crocolisk of myth. 
Rotgrip is a giant crocolisk boss that lives in the bottom of Moradon. Usually this mini-boss is done after Princess Theradras by jumping off the bridge that leads to her island. Rumour has it that Rotgrip has dwelled in Moradon's subterranean waters for millennia. The famed dwarven hunter Hemet Nessingwery once proclaimed that the beast could not be found, and a number of amateur trackers accepted the challenge of seeking out the legendary creature. None of them ever returned. Interestingly for hunters, and I hope this is the case for Classic, I hope Wowpedia has this right, Rotgrip is a tameable beast. Now, Rotgrip drops albino crocscale boots with a sexy plus 20 to agility, Gatorbite axe, a two-handed axe with a dot proc that I'm not too wild about, but I'm happy to be told that I'm wrong on that one, and Rotgrip mantle, some caster shoulders with 17 intellect and 11 spirit, maybe preferred by mages and priests. Princess Theradras, now, who we've heard so much about, let's Let's get to her. The Earth Elemental Theradras, Therizane the Stone Mother's sole daughter, resides in Moradon's inner sanctum. Influenced by the old gods, the princess transformed her home into a den of corruption and suffering. Some believe that her foul powers are tied to the spirit of her dead lover, Zatar. If so, liberating the fallen keeper of the grove might be the only hope of cleansing Moradon. Now, Princess drops some fantastic gear, and we'll go through it all. How about the Blackstone Ring, fantastic for any non-caster. Braces of the Stone Princess, male wrist piece with uh, 6 damn 5 int and 30 attack power. Charstone Dirk, a dagger that shamans may like with plus 11 intellect and 2 MP5. I know you're saying, like, wow, a whole 2 MP5, you shouldn't have. <laughs> Elemental Rock Ridge Leggings, some very handy plate leggings. The Eye of Theradra. The headpiece every caster came here for with 20 intellect, 13 stamina, and 11 spirit. Gem shard heart. The neckpiece every caster came here for with 10 intellect, 10 stamina, and 6 spirit. Princess Theradras's scepter. A great 3.4 speed two-handed mace with a proc that wounds the target for 160 damage and lowers their armor by 100. And as we hear from A-Cloth over at Classic DB, this is awesome for level 49 twink paladins and warriors. Put a crusader on this, get an armor proc, and get ready for some mad crits. And finally, the one epic item on the loot tables here, Blade of Eternal Darkness, the weapon that every caster came here for. The princess truly is a caster's best friend, and it's a really interesting item, the old Blade of Eternal Darkness, as the theory crafters out there have tried to figure out exactly how the proc can work. I'll just read you through a few posts I found over at Classic DB all about it as we wind up our Moradon lore on these points. Firstly, from user Borbu on, and these are all from back in the day, this is late uh, 2006. You guys are thinking that this procs when you melee. It used to be an on-use activation where you had to click the item for it to proc and it would have a cooldown. This is no longer the case. Since 1.10, the proc is now activated when you do a damaging spell on your target. The on-use ability on the Blade of Eternal Darkness has been changed to an on-equip triggered effect with a chance to occur on any damage spell, as per the patch notes. So whenever you cast a spell on your target, you have a chance to do 100 shadow damage as well as gain an extra 100 mana. This is why this item is epic and so rare. The only question is if you get the proc from ticks or from whenever you first cast the spell. In other words, I'm not sure if this will proc from dots like Shadow Word Pain or Corruptions, or if this only procs from instant damaging spells from like Shadow Bolts and Fireballs and whatnot. And this next one comes from user Tibblesworth in The Burning Crusade in mid-2007 who said this, 
I have 255 damage per heal and it still hits for only 100 and will still only give me 100 mana. I've seen it crit for 200 a few times, though I'm not sure if it would only be 150 if I didn't have talents to make my crits do 100% damage, not just the normal 50% for spells. But, newly discovered info, whenever you have something like Berserking, Shadow Weaving or Misery on a target, the proc does do extra damage. So to boil it down, buffs or debuffs that do a percentage extra damage to spells like Misery or Shadow Weaving do affect the damage of the weapon proc. Straight up plus damage though will not affect the damage on the weapon proc. Arcane Power may or may not affect the damage of the proc. If Berserking does affect it though, then I would think that Arcane Power would also affect the damage. I've noted that the proc does receive the 20% spell damage from power infusion, seeing as how power infusion and arcane power are virtually the same thing except that you can cast PI on somebody else. I would assume that yes, the damage proc would do 20% more damage with arcane power. I'm not sure about the hunter's talent ferocious inspiration, which does 3% extra damage to all types of damage. I assume that it would cause extra damage, and this is confirmed, ferocious inspiration does affect the damage. Warlocks can sacrifice their pet and get plus percentage to shadow damage, I'm not sure if this would affect the proc damage, but as with the ferocious inspiration, I assume that it would work. Maybe a warlock could confirm this for us. I guess it's not much, but it's still added information. Up to my knowledge, this weapon does not work off of totem spells. I've placed down hundreds of fire nova totems in my lifetime with this dagger, and no dagger proc has happened. So don't expect your totems to have the dagger prop. To clear up some confusion that keeps getting reposted, yes, this will proc on at least some AoEs. Only Arcane Explosion has been confirmed. Thanks Moshi Moshi for this information that he confirmed on his 70 mage, copied from his post. This blade has got no internal cooldown at all, so if you find yourself very low on mana and have the ability to use an AoE spell, then you can get many times your mana back from downranking and switching to this blade in your main hand. No, this will not proc off of weapon enhancements. Weapon enhancements include Flame Tongue, Wind Fury, Frostbrand, Fiery Enchant, Icy Enchant, etc., etc. No, I don't know why it doesn't proc, but trust me, it has never proc'd for me and my 49 Elemental Shaman and I melee people quite frequently. If you want an explanation, then my best guess can only be that since we'll use Flame Tongue as an example, Flame Tongue originates from the weapon and not you. It doesn't count as your direct damage spell. Yes, it gets extra spell damage, but something in Blizzard's programming states that it is not a direct spell. Next, we have this one from SS Draken in 2007, at the end of 2007 again, who says this. This item doesn't proc on ticking dots. It will proc on the original cast of the dot, but only single damage spells. The proc occurs not on when damage is caused, but when the damage spell hits the opponent. It will proc on Fireball, Shadow Bolt, Smite, for example. It won't proc on Shadow Word, Pain, Auto Attack, Wand, or Malay, for another example. Tibblesworth comes back to us again with this, all Burning Crusade stuff, just remember. Now I've heard a few rumors of this having a proc cooldown, sort of like how Wind Fury has a three second cooldown. Is this true, or is it just merely a rumor? I'm busy farming this item for a chamois, so if I can come up with the answer alone, then I'll repost slash edit. I just received this dagger two days ago with around 80 kills. No matter though. Anyways, to the real stuff. I did two weapon procs in under three seconds, so there's no cooldown, I believe. And this dagger will proc off of lightning shield. That's all I've noticed so far. So with all those forum posts out of the way, that's the lore done. 
But that's it for today, everyone. Please do stay tuned next week for a call that I'm really, really excited for. It's a call that probably took the most amount of editing work I've ever done on a single episode of the show and has been a huge task to make sure I've got it just right. And that's a talk with Chim Lee, a trained musician and operatic singer, all about the music of Vanilla World of Warcraft. And if you haven't seen Chim Lee's YouTube channel yet, then please do go and check that out. He's got some great videos over there, including his Scorecraft series, which breaks down the music of World of Warcraft. Now, I've been recording and editing a slew of tracks over the past week and tinkering with volume levels as well, just to make sure that we get everything just right for you on this episode. I've had some help from listeners as well, and a big thank you to Jamie and Turner for that, but I can't wait to get that to you along with a great chat about the economy and a bunch of other stuff that we've got in the pipeline coming in the next couple of episodes. So please do stay tuned for that. Um, we've got some forum talk coming about uh, the Undercity as well, so it's all going to be great. Lots more Vanilla WoW chat coming, so please check back in with the show then. But just before I let you go, it's time for some thank yous, and a big thank you as always to patrons. Cascade, Connor C, Damien A, David F, Eric L, Herbert, John H C, Jamie S, Michael H, Minoru, Oscar T, Randall H, Rarebit, Rick S, Sylvia K, Tim B, Tim S, Voiquara, and Zulamos. And of course, the very dedicated patrons of Countdown to Classic, an extra special shout out and thank you from the bottom of my heart to Billy C, Fire Spittin' Kitten, Flozy B, Carl W, Nick B, Palfurus, Romani, Tsunami, The Anton, Wilson Ma, and Velarco. Thank you so much to all of you for your phenomenal support of the show. You all know that Countdown to Classic simply would not be able to keep going without your support. That's it for today, everyone. Have a great rest of the week. I'll see you all next time.